Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swaim. Good to be back in the saddle, oh, Alex. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're back in the saddle. We're out on the islands. Riding our tortoises along a beautiful beach <laughs> a million years in the future. <laughs> Finally covering a book that we both know how to pronounce. Yeah. Yeah. Galapagos, Galapage, a wonderful. Uh, <laughs> we both went for yeah, it. Great. We both did. <laughs> well, good. We're already in the pocket. This is going to be a good episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're um, and we basically, you basically said the whole plot just then when it's us riding tortoises. But why don't yeah. we dive a little further into it? Well, you, well, we do find the Statue of Liberty and go, you sons of bitches, you blew it up. But that's plot time you is blew done it now. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but today's book is the 1985 Kurt Vonnegut book, Galapagos, and let's start talking about it in a segment called Plot Time. Whoa, it's coming at you fast, right at the top. We're gonna figure out what the fuck is the plot. Plots. So you plot. It's plots time. Yeah, if you have never heard the show, this is where we talk about what happens in the book. It's pretty self-explanatory. I think I don't even usually say Anyway, Mm -hmm. let's talk about what happens in this book. Uh, I'm confused. Can we go back? (laughs) (laughs) Um, This one jumped out to me because there's not an official intro or prologue or early stage of it. So many of these books, as we've said, we find that the intro or prologue is Kurt speaking in the first person, telling you so many important things. This one has a dedication or two, and then we're in. We're gone. Yeah, he can't. I mean, there's still plenty of novels that you open and it goes... Chapter one, Allison was afraid. <laughs> but like, he can't resist at least a couple little ditties. There's like things. Yeah. But it's, I think, the first one we've read other than the essay collections that doesn't have an elaborately long introduction. Yeah, yeah. Slapstick like, wasn't too long, but it, he still took the time to say like, this is about my dead sister. We're going to have sex in the book later. <laughs> right. And even, even when he boils it down like slapstick, he boils it down and still has a pile of Here's literally everything in the book and what it means. Yes. And anyway, here's the book. He all, he crazy. does his inventory of symbols. <laughs> and we always hearken back to at the end of Breakfast of Champions when he promised to set all his characters free. I like checking yes. in with that. He does a pretty good job. Pretty good. Yeah. Not perfect. This one is a lot like Slapstick, I thought, in that it feels it's one of the few Kurtverse books that is largely outside the rest of the Kurt universe. Yeah, it is. But yeah. not entirely. And we'll get to the little bits where he's like, oh, I couldn't resist. This is this person's dad. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, because well, he also he goes to a lot of Kurt geography, I think, yeah. which we'll talk about. But yeah, you're right. It, it is filled with generally new people doing new things. New characters and yeah. lots of ladies. Yeah, how that's about gonna, that? That's cool. Yeah, although partly because they're necessary for reproduction. And yes. this has a lot of reproduction in it. Speaking of which, <laughs> it is separated into two books, but part one called The Thing Is... Yeah. Or The Thing Was, sorry. And part two called And The Thing Became. Um, so as you can probably pick up on the, the thread, it's going to be all about evolution. This is his yeah, evolution yeah. natural selection book. Yeah, let's, it also, it jumps around in time a lot. I'm curious if we can figure out, like, what are the basic bones of exactly what happens in it? Because the, mm. the, the general story that happens is the story is being told from the year one million one thousand nine hundred eighty-six. A million years past nineteen eighty-six. So year that the book was published. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was published in nineteen eighty-five. So, so a million it's like, and one years. Later, yeah, yeah. They're making it. I think he's making it eighty-six. So it's the future, but right. our time. So of not thing, you know? 
Yeah, but just for clarity's sake, in case you didn't read it, the action of the story all takes place in the near future, like the day after tomorrow. Yeah. But yeah. as a side note, the protagonist exists in the year 1 million, <laughs> 1986, and is relating it from that vantage point. But we yeah. don't see much happen in the year 1 million, 1986. Yeah. He's just looking back. That way, it's obviously a device so he can have someone who has the entire history of everything that happens to humanity because that's what he wants to discuss. And you can only really talk about like how evolution turned out if you have someone who's able to look a million years into the future or past. So he made one. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works well. Yeah, it's a cool approach to it. Uh, and then what happens in 1986 is there is a global uh, financial crisis and then also at the same time, a germ breaks out that renders humans infertile. A little bacterium. He calls it David and Goliath, which I love. And he yeah. brings up over and over how, like, viruses are basically the masters of Earth. Nukes can't really kill them. Yeah. And, like, he's like, in a battle of David and Goliath, does Goliath ever win? Yeah. Ultimately, small bet. things always win. Like, when the dinosaurs died, guess who lived? Tiny little mammal rats that were able to burrow underground. Like, right. David always wins. <laughs> yeah, like bugs, small lizards or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they're doing way better than us. Birds. Yeah, yeah. they all make it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so uh, it eats the ovum of female humans. So yeah. it's people stop. You saw Handmaid's Tale. People stop being able to have kids. <laughs> but, like, yeah. everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then also, these, so these two things are happening at the same time. Most of our characters have gathered in Guayaquil, which is the largest city in Ecuador and is the main port of Ecuador in the country of South America. They've gathered for a nature cruise to the Galapagos Islands. It's called the Nature Cruise of the Century. And because of the financial crisis happening, Ecuador and Peru start going to war with each other through a lot of hijinks and machinations. He loves turning Peru into a world power, which I think is so great. For He thinks Peru is on the rise. Yeah, yeah. They've got a crazy has, Air Force. Yeah. And, yeah. He has several books where in the future Peru is unrecognizably more powerful than it is in our current time. <laughs> oh, yeah, because isn't it, is it slapstick where everybody starts living at Machu Picchu? Yeah, Machu Picchu becomes like the like the Coruscant, like the yeah. city on Earth where all the rich, powerful people live. It's so funny. <laughs> He's intimidated by Peru. It's <laughs> yeah. great. So everybody gathers there, and then basically through a lot of machinations, the boat for the nature cruise of the century barely gets to the Galapagos Islands with a few people on it. And because those people are separate enough and far enough from the rest of humanity and from the germ, humanity repopulates and evolves on the Galapagos for a million years and those, into something else. The small group of like a dozen or so, I'm not counting correctly, but we'll do it later, colonists that end up repopulating the Earth, I think it's important to note, never know anything that happened. Um, right. As we unpack the plot, you'll see there's basically only a few what we would call modernly educated people among them. Yeah. And uh, one of them who has a lot of authority at the time tells them with certainty that the missiles they saw falling were meteorites. So they all believe that the world was destroyed by meteorites and they repopulate the earth. So all the stuff we just told you, they never even know. Like they don't even right. know there was a bacteria that killed everyone's eggs or anything. Yeah, yeah. They just think that they're stranded on a desert island forever <laughs> and they yeah. live their full lives there and have kids <laughs> and they have kids. Yeah. But right. the narrator lets us know this is actually the only remaining pocket of humanity and they become the dominant or the only like bastion of humanity on earth. 
Yeah. yeah, and and partly because of what those islands naturally select for, and also partly because one of the boat's passengers uh, has a lot of radiation exposure in their family from the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs in Japan, uh, and then has a baby with fur on it. Because of those two factors and a few other things, <laughs> humanity over a million years evolves into swimming, fish-catching, seal-like creatures yes. with much smaller brains who are much happier. It is a good critique of natural selection and exploration of natural selection. But that's yeah. the one time where I think he – that's like such a hacky cop-out. He does <laughs> use the idea that radiation can speed evolution along, which makes no sense. It's very X-Men, uh, which yeah, is Yeah, so... right. Like, yes, radiation can cause mutations. It doesn't cause an advantageous mutation ever. Radiation yeah. just wreaks havoc with your cells and makes you get cancer. They, we know it this. It just like kills yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but in this world – it makes her have a seal baby, basically, that's like a hum- totally human inside, but they have seal-like fur. And we know from the from the narrator that, yeah, a million years from now, all humans will be – you get oblique descriptions, but you can kind of gather they're basically like otters. Yeah. Um, and the important thing is we have reverted to an animal state mentally, and he is going to use the whole book to argue that we're much better off. Right. That's basically the only point of the book is that is he's trying to prove to you that this society where, yes, there's downsides. The average lifespan is now 30. They don't understand tools. Um, <laughs> but also they're not aware that they will inevitably die someday. They have no war, blah, blah, blah. So you have to decide after all his arguments who's better off, like the past society or the yeah. society where we're all just at a state of nature again. Yeah, because he he also argues that the humans, as they're evolving into fish catchers, they're like more aerodynamic swimmers, so they're faster swimmers if they have smaller brains, if they have a lower head profile. So that's the mechanic that makes people dumber and more animal-like and then able to catch more fish and populate more. So that that makes sense mostly. But at the same time, he's doing a lot of just nonsense science to serve the story. He plays fast and loose with how evolution actually works, but the underpinnings of his argument are are like cogent. Yes. He understands natural selection, but he is free to use plot devices to be like, I'm going to speed this up. I'm going to change how it actually works. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it makes the arguments not true, even if you Agreed. understand natural selection. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, there's all, and there's one other oh, sure. plot mechanic, which is that, and I think it's one of the first actual mysteries in a Vonnegut book. As you know, this is a show for people who have or haven't read the books, partly because Kurt kind of spoils all his own stuff at the top of his book, so there's nothing to spoil. Uh, but this is actually one of the first spoilable mystery-ish things he's ever done, where you have a narrator telling you this whole story from the future, and he doesn't tell you who it is until very late in the book, which I found exciting. It was like a thing to figure out. Yes, it's the only time this whole podcast I've written notes in the margins that were questions. Yeah. It, well, I've written philosophical questions to ask you, but yeah, yeah. I've always known everything that's going on. And this time yeah. I was like, because he'll go like, of course, I'm saying this from the year one million. And I would were like, you, Kurt, or some character. Right. And then later it'd be clear that it's a character because he would say stuff from his life. And then he'd be like, of course, I would have been dead for 800,000 years by then. And I'd write like, then who is this? Like, who? how are you writing this? So that is a great mystery throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the answer to the mystery sure, spoil is it that immediately. it's Leon Trout, who is the son of Kilgore Trout, 
who is the key recurring character from so many Kurt Vonnegut books. And he has died, but also chosen not to go into the afterlife. In this book, you find out the cosmology of it is there's a blue tunnel that you have to go down to actually go into the afterlife. And Leon Trout was a shipbuilder in Sweden working on the boat for the nature cruise of the century. He's killed in an accident. And he decides not to go into the afterlife. Instead, he lives in people's heads and follows them around. And because he didn't go into the afterlife and also passes up an opportunity to that comes up later, he then has to stay on this island for a million years learning the thing he wants to learn about humanity. It's exactly like Frighteners, if you haven't seen as Peter Jackson's first American movie with Michael J. Fox. Fucking awesome movie. I Highly recommended. It. Very good. Very fun. It's Ooh, what he did. We got right, a thumbs up from Brett. Right Brett before Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's the same cosmology where like, yeah, you see the white light. In Frighteners, it's white and this is blue. Yeah. But as a ghost, if you have unfinished business, you're not forced to stay, but you can choose to stay. And our protagonist chooses to stay, but every time you choose – you have to wait longer. So yeah. at one point, his dad will come kill Gore Trout and be like, I'm not coming back again for a million years. Do you want to <laughs> sh- be in this shitty waiting room for a million years? And he's like, something happens to distract him, basically. So he gets stuck for a million years. That's yeah. how we know all this stuff. See Frighteners. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's a Vonnegut-y movie, it turns yeah, out. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, or okay, is it okay now to zoom into? Yeah, now I think we can zoom in, because that's okay. the whole story, pretty much. That's the story from the perspective of like yeah. a God's eye view. Yeah, and the book jumps constantly in time and constantly does a, this was happening then, but a million years later it was I'll this, be dead, but a million years before be it was this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, I think it's important to note, he wasn't just killed, he was decapitated. Yeah. So, and his life as a ghost is a lot happier than his human life. Yes. So, as is the theme of the book, losing his head is a beneficial thing to him. Oh, <laughs> I have thought of it that way. I like that. And his name is Leon Trotsky Trout, which is just Kurt being a fucking liberal, <laughs> getting it in there. Um, right. If it's not Eugene Debs, it's, it's full on communist from Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the zooming in, as in any like giant uh, apocalypse movie, like 2012, 2012 or whatever, <laughs> we see the apocalypse through the eyes of a handful of characters that we zoom in on. Yeah. Um, in order, and of course, these characters are going to be the characters that are destined to end up on the desert island and repopulate the earth. Yeah. Well, the Galapagos Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a particular we, one, not Baltra. That's the one they miss. So, I, so I, I think I googled it right. They land on one called Santa Rosalia. Yeah, but as far as I can tell, that is a made-up Galapagos island. Oh, okay. It is not an actual member of the cluster of islands because he, Kurt, describes it as being kind of further away from the rest of them. I think he just wanted one to be like that, so that he, he could just up. do with what he wanted and not be scientifically wrong if he put the wrong animals there or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also reading it, reading his letters of that time. He seemed to know from the beginning that he wanted to do a Darwin book and do a book built on natural selection. But the two things he struggled with were how to plot it. And you can kind of see it's 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 a really, really worked over plot. But also he felt like he didn't know enough biology. Like he, in one of them, he says, like, I have to be a biologist and a storyteller. It's really hard. It's taken forever. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually he was just like... I will fudge the biology. That's the thing to do. Cause I'll like, make radiation like said, do this and whatever. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like you said, his main arguments work anyway, but it, that was clearly his way out. Was cool. I'll make up some islands and make up some biology and it'll work. And he does that. He force gumps it all the time. Like, yeah. you know, Mr. Rosewater exists among the real Rockefellers and Vanderbilts, but the Rosewaters aren't real. Like, he's right. fine. He always does. An analogous thing is in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, this is his San Lorenzo from Cat's Cradle or what have you. And what is this? His fourth apocalypse? 
This is oh. the fourth time he's taken us to the end of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, we should have been doing a counter, like Jack Bauer kills Yes, the, en- the end of the world is not something he shies away from. He steers into it heavily. Yeah. <laughs> Although this one technically is not the end of the world because he argues that they're better off. So, but let's get into how, yeah. it, how it plays out. And I think you're right. It's very plotty and it's very dialogue light. Did you notice that? It is, yeah. It's, it's really heavy on description of what's happening and a lot more than usually happens out externally. Yeah. Usually you're in the characters' heads a lot. This book has a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think it made me, yeah, it feels like uh, I kept comparing it to a Shakespeare play where people are externalizing their inner thoughts more and it's a lot of like cool this shit is happening and it's very like operatic every act ends in a big shift for all the characters like they thought the world wasn't ending now they know it is ending now they're stranded on a boat now they're on an island now it's a million years in the future (laughs) uh stuff like that so it reminded me of the tempest a bit that's a oh, that's such a good parallel yeah yeah fun my favorite it's like a free related reading right up top oh yeah very good yeah it's one of my favorites too. Yeah, that and King Lear. Those are the best. Yes. Yeah. And I think, okay, I have the note later, so I'll get to it later. But there is a, a moment that I was like, this is King Lear also. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. I don't remember where. Okay, so who do we got? I, I remember that the first character we're introduced to is Waite. Yeah. So there's a guy James? named James, James Waite, who is a scammy con man type. And he's at the bar of the Hotel El Dorado in Guayaquil. And he's being waited on by a bartender named Jesus Ortiz. And he is there to catch a older lady marry her and bilk her out of her money and he's been doing that for years across the world yeah all sorts of i think ladies. he's done it to 17 yeah. widowers and he has millions of dollars and they go a little bit into his background i think kurt understands how people become eat like fucked up <laughs> so he says you know he's the product of incest and then his dad beat the shit out of him and he had to leave and he never got schooling so as a yeah. result he's a terrible man yeah he was uh, <laughs> uh like gay for pay prostitute in new york at oh one yeah point. midnight Cow- the plot of Midnight Cowboy happens yeah. in this book in like a few sentences. He goes to New York, an old wise bum yeah. like teaches him how to be a male prostitute and then dies of illness. It's literally all the main action of Midnight Cowboy. Oh, yeah, I've never seen it, but I know the touchstones. Great yeah, movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but nowadays he's an older man, like uh, late 50s or whatever, and he's just here fishing. Fishing's another big theme yeah. uh, for his latest victim. Yeah, yeah. Who he thinks is going to be Mary Hepburn. Right. And so the narrator lays out very specifically that there are six guests for the cruise that are in Guayaquil. The cruise is also supposed to have a lot of famous people on it. Mick Jagger specifically was yeah, going to come. Yeah, Jackie Onassis, <laughs> and like famous, famous people. Uh, and none of them are going to make it because the financial crisis just happened. The Armageddon's and, happening. So they're yeah. like, everyone's hunkering down and canceling everything out. Yeah. yeah, and it's a global, un- irreversible Great Depression. Like, it's a bigger crisis than anyone's ever yeah. had. But he says there are six people who will make it. And the narrator also puts stars next to some of their names and says, throughout the book, when somebody is about to die, I'm going to put a star next to their name. Uh, I think he says straight up that it's partly so you know they won't be involved in uh, genetics anymore. They won't be spreading themselves. Everything is through the lens of natural selection. Yes. So the narrator literally puts stars by people who are not going to pass on their genes as if to say that's the only important criterion. And like later he'll describe some 
Oh, James Waite, who had murdered one person, just like in Midnight Cowboy. One of his Johns, who he was having sex with, wants him to do some freaky stuff, and he ends up going too far and killing him. Yeah, it um, asphyxiates him. Again. Which happens yeah. in Midnight Cowboy. It's not an asphyxiation, but the same dynamic. Oh, yeah. And uh, the narrator steps out to say, so this guy's actually a very successful, very good human, because he had both reproduced once and murdered a rival. Yeah. <laughs> so like, joke. Yeah. yeah. And the stars, <laughs> I think, are part of that. We're watching humans as if we were watching a nature special. It's like, is the fox going to eat the antelope, or is the antelope going to escape? Who yeah. has the better attributes? Who's going to survive? I al- And the, also the way the stars are just look, they look a lot like asterisks. And to me, mm-hmm. it was also sort of a joke about like they're asterisk people. Like, they, they're, they're not details now. They don't really matter. You yeah, they're I mean? footnotes. Like yes. the way that, oh, now that they're not going to reproduce anymore, they're done. Fuck you know, them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it even says James sat in the lobby eager for yet another chance to test his survival skills. Like he's into it. He does <laughs> think of life as that because it's been so hard for him. He's a dick. And uh, <laughs> his latest target is one of the other six people and one of the main characters who will survive is Mary Hepburn. Yeah. Um, and her backstory in a quick, quick nutshell is she had a great life with a great husband and it fell apart. Her husband died of a brain tumor. Um, She was a biology teacher, so she knows a lot about evolution and natural selection. A lot of parallels are made to the fact about how she teaches all her kids about how the human brain is the most miraculous instrument like ever to come into existence. Yet at the same time, she'd go home every day and take care of her husband who had a tumor that at a relatively young age, pressing on his brain and making him act crazy. So obviously brains are not infallible. Um, and part of his craziness was, despite the fact that they aren't rich enough to go, he heard about the nature cruise of the century one day, and on like a crazy whim, he set it all up and like booked tickets in the cheapest possible cabin. And in fact, they were the first people to book. And then his dying words to her were like, don't be sad. Do get remarried. I love you very much. Go on the cruise. Don't mope around. Promise me you'll go on the cruise. Yeah, it's like a dying, you <laughs> yeah. must do this. So it's even like, though yeah. she's literally suicidally depressed, yeah. she has to go on the cruise because she promised her dying husband she would. So she makes a perfect target for James Waite. Right, right. And they, all, and they also both... When he booked their tickets, it shouldn't have worked out because she was a teacher and she had work and he had work. But then his plant went away because of automation and then everybody moved out of town because of automation. So she lost her school teaching job. Little player piano like, nods. Yeah. <laughs> and so all the random factors pushed her to definitely go on this boat whether or not she wanted to. Yeah. And she's just hanging out in her room because they lost all her luggage also. She's wearing, like, a burlap sack army fatigue, basically, just, like, the only thing she has. And considering whether to wrap the plastic garment bag around her head and just fucking be done with it. Right, right. That's where she is. (laughs) And then we're introduced to uh, more on the roster. Who else? Who do you want to jump to next? (laughs) So two of them are James Wade and Mary Hepburn. And then we've also got Zenji Hiraguchi, who is a incredibly skilled programmer from Japan. Also, he already has a star. He's on the way out. And then his pregnant wife, Hisako, who is a teacher of Ikebana, which is a Japanese art of floral arrangement. Yes. Yeah. And we know uh, she is pregnant with the child who will become Akiko. The, uh, and oh, she was in Hiroshima, which is why yeah. her baby will be born with fur. Now it will be Akiko, a character later. Yeah, so that right, that's already set up in the events. That's yes. already going to happen. Yeah, they are here under false names because right. uh, the thing about Zenji is he created essentially an analog for the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, it, it Kurt kind of came up with Google Translate. Yes, before anyone else did, and, and plus some other features that make it very iPhone-like. I know? think because it starts with he talks about the what's it called the Go Book. 
I know the second one's Mandarax. Go, Gokubi, I think. Gokubi, which yeah. is a device he invented that became really popular that is a universal translator. Um, it hears and then it types out on a printout what they said. And then he's invent- He's currently in the process of inventing the new generation, the Mandarax, that can do a bunch more. It has a bunch more built-in apps-like functions. Yeah. Um, which is great. I mean, Kerr was really, in 1985, to be like, this is, he has a little box that has all these modules that do different tasks. That's pretty amazing prediction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's basically an iPhone that doesn't make phone calls, which is also kind of what I want. <laughs> the reason he, the reason they're there and they don't even want to be on the cruise is they're there at basically the forcible request of Andrew McIntosh. Yeah. Our other two people on the list of six are Andrew McIntosh, who has a star, and then his congenitally blind daughter, Selena. But Andrew McIntosh sees the technology that Zenji's making and says, hey, we should just start a company. You'll make a lot more money that way. You won't just give it all to this Japanese conglomerate that you work for. And so Zenji is like, all right, I guess. And they don't have a great relationship going, but Andrew talks them into going on this cruise together under fake names so they can discuss starting the company in private. Like they'll have right. privacy on a boat. Secretly talk through the deal because obviously Zenji like would be fired or something if anyone found out he was doing that. Yeah, so like they just does- told the company they're going on vacation. Yeah. But um, Andrew is secretly trying to convince him to quit the company and become like his man. And the way he's going to do that, uh, first of all, Andrew McIntosh, you should note, is explicitly described as borderline personality, pathological consumerist, yeah. who uh, is obs- is the classic plutocrat obsessed with amassing power and money to fill a hole he can never fill, and he'll never stop. <laughs> um, he's <laughs> yeah. like an empty suit. It's very 80s Wall Street to me. Yes, it's he's very, that yeah. guy. His secret plan is to take advantage of the financial crisis and the billions of starving, dying people <laughs> right. to buy up most of Ecuador... <laughs> Using money that's not really his, using a series of like structured loans from Chase Manhattan so that he can basically own all the land in Ecuador, give half of it to Zenji, start a company in Ecuador and be like, now we're bonded forever by the fact that you own all this land in Ecuador. I own all this land in Ecuador. It's a no brainer to start the company here. He's trying to do everything he can to manipulate the situation so that Zenji is like, I have to do this. It would be dumb not to do this. But at the same time, Zenji is resistant to the idea because he and his wife recognize that Andrew McIntosh is like a monster. And they're like, do we want to work with this guy? In fact, Mandarax, their device that is capable of of basically uh, medical diagnoses, diagnoses him as like a pathological liar and like, yeah, opportunist. (laughs) So they're scared of him. Yeah, and Hisako in particular is very worried about it because she didn't ask to be part of this deal and didn't ask to be pregnant in a random South American country to her. She's doubly offended because she finds out that the next version of Mandarax is going to have an Ikebana app that teaches Ikebana, so she will have no longer have a job. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a big fight, basically. Yeah, it's very hard, very, very heartbreaking scene, I thought. Yeah, yes, yeah. her husband has decided to automate her, which he didn't see as an insult, but she sees as, like, robbing her of her career. She's pushing him to tell Andrew, let's just get out of this. Let's not do the cruise. I don't want to be trapped on a boat with this dude for a week. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Andrew McIntosh is on the phone trying to push this deal through and set up all the last-minute details. We should say he is there with his daughter, the last of the six. 
Right, yeah, uh, Selena. Uh, Selena yeah, yeah. McIntosh, yeah. And they also have, uh, she has a seeing eye dog named Kaz- Kazak. It's spelled a little differently than the usual Kazak. That it's Monica different does. gender and spelled differently. Yeah. And is totally, I think it is Kazak, you're right. Or I can't tell, but it's spelled yeah, with an H like it should be Kazak or something. Well, it's also like, I can't tell if Kurt's doing it like the country of Kazakhstan on purpose mm-hmm. or Kazakhstan. I don't even right. know if I pronounced that right. But I'll just say Siren's. I can't speak. Yeah. <laughs> Siren's Kazak seems like a really good boy. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and the Kazak or Kazak in this book is like a dumb dog. Like, yeah, trained from birth to be a seeing eye dog, no personality whatsoever, doesn't really provide any comfort to Selena other than being a functional thing. And yeah. is there more of an avatar of like, look how humans fuck with natural selection? That's interesting. Right. It's just interesting that Kazak was born to do things like salivate over red meat and want to hump when she's in heat and want to chase small animals. She doesn't do any of those things because they cut out her sex organs and they trained her to just be a robot that to helps this blind girl. Right, That's right. just an interesting side note about natural selection. It can be <laughs> fucked with. Yeah, it's very yeah. manipulatable. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And Selena, unfortunately, as I'll bring up in Vana Watts, doesn't have much of a personality, seemingly yeah. because she's blind, which I don't like the implication, but she's just kind of her dad's like attache. Yeah, she, I kept expecting, I had read this book once before a long time ago, but I didn't remember it well. So rereading it, I was like, they're going to use Selena for a thing, right? That'll be, she'll mm-hmm. be significant, right? And it, it seems weird. She's just kind of tossed in there. Later, when Zenji is dead and they're all on the island and Hisako's raising Akiko alone, Selena will like move in with her and help her raise the kid. But that seems to be her only. Yeah. And, and didn't feel totally necessary to me either. Cause, yeah. Because Hisako could have just done that stuff on her own. It's yeah. Not like a... Let's start ending the world here. Yeah. The way it starts to unravel is Zenji is uh, outside of his room because he just had a fight with his wife. Now, Andrew McIntosh is going to leave his room because (laughs) he's on the phone trying to make this deal. And he orders two filet mignons from room service. Now, he should know, but it doesn't occur to him because he's a monster, like totally self-centered. This is a third world country where everyone's starving. There are armed soldiers outside keeping the mob away from the hotel because they're trying to, like, overrun it and steal all the food. And he orders two filet mignons from room service. A waiter, who's native, obviously, brings the steaks. This is Ortiz, right? Expecting them to be, obviously, for this rich dude and his daughter. And he's thinking, that's okay. When you're rich, you can buy steaks. I hope to be rich someday. This is cool. Then he gets there, and the guy is on the phone, and he's like, oh, great. Thanks for the steaks. Feed them both to the dog and get the hell out of here. I'm on the phone. And this is... So insulting and upsetting, obviously, it completely flips his entire perception of like, he used to think the world was a good place where you work hard and you get rich. Now he realizes, <laughs> no, it's the opposite. This is the end of the world. Fuck these people. Yeah. And he rips all the fuses out of the fuse box in the hotel. Yeah, he, he, they make it very clear that he believes deeply in capitalism and in the way that you hear yes. about a lot of people in America are like uh, supportive of policies that help the rich because they believe they will be rich someday. It's all hard work. You'll be fine. Uh, he believes in that and basically has a mental breakdown when Andrew makes him feed steaks to the dog instead of people. And so, yeah, then he rips out all the phone lines in the hotel, isolating them in a right. way that ends up being useful to human evolution. <laughs> of course, everything will serendipitously create the situation Kurt wanted to end with. But uh, yeah, and he's showing us the details of how that breaks down. So that gets Andrew out of his hotel room. He sees Zenji. 
Zenji is going outside for a walk to clear his head. Yeah. The last thing he wants to see is Andrew, the guy he was just fighting about. Nevertheless, Andrew catches up to him and is like, hey, remember me? It's me, Ned. Needlenose Ned. Ned Ryerman. <laughs> and like just won't stop telling him about the deal. Yeah. And is even like, and Zenji is like, he says through Mandarax in Japanese, like, I'm very upset. Please just give me a moment. And he's like, I know. Fuck me, right? I come on strong. I know. But it's because I get results. And I'm not going to let you go. And here's why. Like, I think this deal is great. So he just won't fucking leave Zenji alone. And they're walking through the town together, vaguely becoming aware that, like, oh, there's, like, gunshots and shit happening and, like, riots happening yeah. outside. I didn't realize that. Because also, <laughs> for, a, for a lot of them, this complete financial collapse of the world happens so fast and timed so poorly. A lot of them were on planes from the United States to Ecuador. And during the flight, the entire yeah. world economy collapses. It's that quick. So then they both get shot in the head. And (laughs) by a guy is total random chance. And the only thing we find out about him is that he's unfortunately born with bad brain chemistry. Again, bad brains. Fuck you up. Yeah. Um, His name's Geraldo Delgado. He's a paranoid schizophrenic. But as as Ecuador fell apart and they needed more and more soldiers to keep the peace, they stopped doing psyche valves. So he got an arm. He got armed. And now that everything's broken out and soldiers are roaming the streets, his schizophrenia is in like high pitch. And he thinks he's like, I can't remember what his delusion is. He's breaking into the ballet folklorico to keep them from destroying his mind with tiny radios. Classic schizophrenia shit. Right, right. He sees Andrew and Zenji, thinks that they are his desperate enemies, shoots them in the head. They never know what hit them. (laughs) And that's all because he thinks he's breaking into the ballet folklorico, which uh, Vonnegut sets up as like the most impressive cultural achievement of all of Ecuador and like the home of their cultural dance. But for some reason he thinks they're the Illuminati. Like the the National Ballet Company is trying to destroy him. Yeah. yeah, and in actuality, he's breaking into like a souvenir shop next to the hotel. That's like where he. Yeah. And so, uh, and then he see he thinks Zenji and Andrew are there to stop him and shoots them. But in actuality, they were just walking around near the hotel. And then in that fracas, it creates a way into the hotel and six girls who are natives from the Concabono tribe, which Vonnegut sets up as a cannibal tribe from Ecuador that I believe is made up. Uh, they then have this opening through the broken into souvenir shop where guys got shot to get into the hotel where otherwise guards would have stopped them at every point. There's a military barricade everywhere else. Yeah. yeah. And they are the last of the Concabonos. Uh, real quick, the way that happened is uh, we didn't know, other than like one Franciscan friar who was living with them for 40 years, white Western culture was not aware that there were concabonos left. Yeah. So they sprayed DDT or an equivalent pesticide over this big area that they were planning to cultivate, and it killed all the remaining concabonos who were living in that area. Yeah. Um, these six girls were at church with the friar or something a mile away. So they didn't die. The friar, I think with his last act before he died or disappeared, got them into town basically. So it's important to note that they're truly nativist. They don't know what electronics are. They've never seen cars and they're young women. And so they like don't know what's going on. They certainly don't know that there's a global crisis or even that the world is ending or what that means or what globalization (laughs) is. Um, So they just find a building with an open door and there's food inside. So they start wandering around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, it's like a really luck based series of events where this priest begs a bush pilot to fly the girls out. And then the bush pilot ends up giving them to a guy in town who seems to be a a priest and educator named Domingo Quezada is actually like an alcoholic 
and a sex criminal. Yeah, he's who, like a Fagin or like the dude from <laughs> Act One of Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. No qualms about turning them into prostitutes, etc. Yeah. So he's like, these little girls will become child prostitutes and give for me all me the money to pay yeah. for my alcohol. <laughs> Uh, which is just uh, maybe the one of the darkest points in any Vonnegut book ever. He doesn't linger on it, but there's it's a lot gross. of those in these. Like he says, yeah. the paranoid schizophrenic guy will also be considered a success by natural selection standards because the next day he will rape a woman who will conceive. Right, and you're like, ah, that's yeah, dark. <laughs> he had to throw that in. Yeah, yeah. so these and girls are the handmaids, or like, because yeah, they and then they got away from the sex criminal yeah. guy, and then are just loose on the streets, starving. And then this murder and robbery attempt is the way they get into the hotel, and eventually onto the boat. Yes, but the yeah. reason I say they're handmaids is the plot is essentially using them as wombs, <laughs> or like they're Mad yeah, Max yeah. Fury Road women. It becomes a way to get some genetic diversity into the survivors. He didn't want it to be a Garden of Eden situation where every child is the product of incest by necessity. Right. So he diluted it a little (laughs) by having six working wombs delivered to the desert island. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and also, yeah. and then in the meantime, in the hotel, Mary Hepburn decides not to end up strangling herself with the plastic bag. Goes downstairs to the bar, and in her head, she has those dying wishes from her husband of marry somebody and go on the cruise and be happy. Yeah. And she meets James Waite, who is claiming to be a Canadian named Willard Fleming. And they hit it off because he's good at luring somebody in, and she is the most lurable lady in the world. Well, also because by sheer chance, the girls just came into the lobby yeah, crying right. for food and saying, we're starving. And be, like in the way that you just want a crowd of kids to leave you alone, if you're an asshole, right. he like is giving them bar food. Like he's throwing peanuts and shit at them. Yeah. And she thinks, what a nice man. <laughs> like she assumes he went out and found them in the gutter and brought them in to feed them. Right, when right. in actuality, they came up to him and he's like jesus all right here's cherries and pickles and shit and uh, <laughs> if i give you 10 olives will he go away yeah. it's like that kind of thing so that she is described as immediately falling in love with him he now has a star by his name because he's gonna have a fatal heart attack soon as events unfold yeah. and at, by a twist of fate she will never find out he's an asshole he will never rip her off so she will go to her grave thinking he was also a great man and that she had two wonderful husbands yeah and that's just like it's very ender's gamey like it's a weird facet of life that peter wiggin is such a dick but turns out doing good things with his life and ender wiggin is trying to help and turns out only <laughs> fucking everything up yeah um so james wade is an asshole who goes down in history as a really good guy for no reason <laughs> Right. Do you still believe in God? <laughs> it seems to be what he's getting at to me. Like, or do you still believe in fate when this shit can happen? <laughs> so all our passengers are assembling at the hotel. All, uh, it's all coming together. Then we also have a captain named Adolf von Kleist, which is uh, Vonnegut doing another long German name with Vons or Vans in it because he loves doing that. Yes. Uh, and his brother, something Siegfried. else von Kleist, Siegfried yeah. von Kleist, is the bartender at the hotel. And he's just a decent dude. He won't make it to the end, but I only mention him because he does end up on the boat technically briefly. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And he'll help get the other people who do survive to the boat. Yeah. Uh, Adolf's the captain of the boat. He was always planned to be the captain of the boat. And he's like a gadabout, I want to say. Yeah, he's a figurehead, tall, good-looking guy who is supposed to just be the captain for PR purposes. Because this nature cruise of the century, Vonnegut takes a lot of pains to make it clearly a big PR exercise. Like, there's a lot of planning behind it to make it seem cool to book the most famous people in the world as guests. They even kind of lie about the identities of our other passengers to make them seem cooler, just for PR. To try 
trying overall, like they're trying to boost the tourist income of Galapagos as a whole, not just this one cruise, but it's like a big coup to try to turn Galapagos into the new Hawaii or whatever. And and so Adolf is just a figurehead. Like he's he goes on the Tonight Show and he's in all the advertising, but there's a different guy who's actually the one who knows how to captain it. Adolf, meanwhile, is hanging out at the hotel, uh, drinking a lot. And just on the to boat. Out what to he's do. in his private quarters still. Oh, that's on right. He's on the boat, yeah. Getting wasted, waiting for news of whether the cruise is indeed going to happen or not happen. Because he's aware of the financial collapse and is like, yeah, shit's falling apart. I bet this is not even going to happen. I don't even yeah. have to go to work. I'm just going to get drunk. <laughs> and if the world really falls apart, at least I'm in a boat. I can, like, get out of here. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, his first mate, who's the person who actually knows how to run the boat, the boat is so sophisticated, even though he is a captain of boats, Adolf can't run the boat. And the guy who can run it decides to leave and help his family yeah. get food instead of staying. <laughs> it's uh, Hernando Cruz is his name. Yeah, yeah. Cruz. And, uh, that makes and, sense. <laughs> and the the boat and the hotel are basically the only place left in Ecuador that has food in it. And so he's like, no, I'm going to help my family and takes food and leaves. And also as, as all this is happening, I don't know if I'm lining it up exactly right, but the crowd breaks through the guards and the perimeter around the hotel yeah. and rushes in, takes all the food from the hotel. And also the boat was very well stocked with lobsters and Dom Perignon. They take all that. They just loot everything that's not tied down. Right. So since the hotel's getting looted, uh, Adolf's brother, Siegfried von Kleist, uh, sort of takes the leadership role and says to the remaining characters that we've all laid out, oh, shit, everyone's breaking in. Follow me to safety. Right. I have a bus, basically, and I have the keys. So we'll get in the bus and we'll drive somewhere safe. So everyone follows him. At this exact moment, a genetic disease... Of course, <laughs> bearing on natural selection, of course. Yeah. A genetic disease that both Adolf and Siegfried have a 50% chance of having from right. their father, which is why neither of them have ever had children because they're scared of passing it on. It turns out Adolf doesn't have it and will never get it. It turns out Siegfried does have it and the stress of this event will make him get it right now. So yeah. he starts to get a real disease called Huntington's col cholera, which, uh, or cholera. Correa, I think. Correa, okay. yeah, Huntington's yeah. chorea. I think maybe, <laughs> but it is real and it does make you, uh, it makes you start to lose. It's called the dancing sickness because yeah. you start to lose control of your nervous impulses and you just start like doing a jig. Like you're all your, not necessarily as mo as coordinated as a good jig, but right. I've seen some good jigs, but, um, <laughs> but it's called the dancing sickness because you tend to not be able to stay still and you sort of dance around. Yeah. So he gets that. <laughs> right. But it nevertheless, looked... heroically gets everyone safely on a bus, including the six little girls, uh, James Waite, and everyone else we've mentioned who hasn't been killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his his plan is, we're going to get you guys to the airport in Guayaquil, and then we'll get you out of here. At the same time, the Peruvian Air Force has begun striking Ecuador because a couple of hours ago they declared war, and ostensibly war to take back the Galapagos Islands that they, have they are saying are theirs. Uh, and the first target they hit is the airport. So on the way to the airport, there is a massive explosion at the airport that shakes everything and almost flips the bus over yep. because it was a military target, quote unquote, that um, was destroyed. I just realized this is a lot like Dave Barry books. Have you ever read any of his full length novels? Uh, no, I think I've just read like long essay collections. What's delightful about Dave Barry's novels is that he is like an Arrested Development guy. It's plot to the thousandth degree and serendipity. <laughs> Everything's just by chance, but you're like, how could this be happening? <laughs> oh, great. It so feels a lot like that. Yeah. So at the same, that very explosion is what makes drunken Adolf believe meteorites are striking the earth. Yeah. And 
forces them to go to the boat instead. Yeah, so his brother's like, okay, I'll take you to a boat. My brother runs the boat. Hopefully he's still alive and he still has the keys to the boat or whatever you do, and we can be on the boat. Um, He drives them there. They barely make it. He's quite heroic. Uh, He gets everyone on board the boat. Adolf, all drunk, comes out and is like, what are you doing dancing for? That's funny. You making fun of dad? Yeah, dad was an asshole. And Siegfried's like, you idiot, you drunken dick. I have father's disease. You have to take all these people and get them to safety. The world's over. I'm, I don't want to live anymore because I'm not going to be a dancing asshole for the rest of my life. Right. I'm just going to get in the bus, drive back to town, and crash into a wall. Cool? You are now responsible. Take these people. And Adolf is immediately like, fuck, I'm drunk as shit, and if I'm honest with myself— I know I, I have no skills, and now I'm the leader. Like, everyone's looking at me to save them. Yeah, yeah. And that's the situation now. So well, we've gotten to the boat. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the Peruvian Air Force's second move is to take out any boat that seems like a military boat in the harbor of Guayaquil, and the number one boat that seems like a military boat is the ship called the Bahia de Darwin that was purpose-built for this nature cruise of the century. However, the looters took everything out of it, including its radar setup, and the Peruvian bombs are trained to hit radar. So the second airstrike from the Peruvians hits a boat called the San Mateo next to the boat that all our characters are on. Where the looters took the radar. Right, right. (laughs) So, like, again, by sheer chance... The boat lives, yeah. Yeah, and that blast fully throws it loose from the harbor and out into the water. And like Michael said, this book technically has a book one and book two. That's how it's structured. Book one's a lot longer. The end of book one is second airstrike hits. All of our characters who we have met are sent on a second Noah's Ark, which is this boat going out into the ocean eventually to the Galapagos Islands. It's exciting, isn't it? As we're recounting it, I'm like, I think it might be the most action-packed plot of his so far at least like it would make a kick-ass action movie a bunch of cool shit happens <laughs> and it it's weird because a lot of the book you think like oh parts of this would be a really exciting kick-ass movie and then toward the end of the book events happen that would be a terrible movie and the narrator says this can never be a movie yeah because it's disgusting and gross and He's, weird <laughs> there's gonna be scenes where he says and this is the scene that makes this book not adaptable to film yeah, <laughs> yeah he'll literally say shit like that He's like, imagine a a million years ago, our present, seeing this scene in a movie. You wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't happen. Uh, Okay, so part two. We're on the open ocean. Everyone expects the captain to know how to captain the ship. He does not. (laughs) Yeah. And and once we're in book two, the mystery ends and the narrator reveals himself as Leon Trout and tells his own story of, I was, I traipsed around the world. I served in Vietnam and was pretty shell-shocked by it. And then I ended up in Sweden building boats and I was killed building boats. And then I became a ghost and I ghosted around in people's minds. I'm a ghost. Yeah. (laughs) And ghosts do have the ability to enter people minds and read their thoughts and that's how he's such a great robust narrator just gives him that ability um (laughs) he makes a point i think is great which is he goes into the captain's head because he's like this is the guy who's in charge i wonder what his plan is to save all these people and the captain's thinking about meteorites (laughs) and he's like right he has no plan it's an interesting side note about human brains i often went into people's brains because i'm like well their life is in danger i bet they're thinking something interesting and they'd be thinking some random memory like cookies (laughs) from 20 years ago or whatever (laughs) he's like brains are weird so yeah this is the part where uh andrew mcintosh has a or sorry james Waite has a massive heart attack 
Right. Um, which makes him very scared. And as people who are scared tend to say nice things, he says nice things. Mary Hepburn is helping him. So he says things like, oh, you're so sweet. I love you. Oh, I don't want to be alone. Oh, I'm right. so scared. And he eventually asks her to marry him and eventually wears her down. And they do the old sitcom move where she says, okay, I'll marry you because she expects him to die soon. But the captain is like, as a ship's captain, I hereby marry I you. I marry thee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, <laughs> shit. Okay. Yeah. There's all I think there's a, a, de- a reasonably funny part in that not only does Mary Hepburn think that James Wade is a Canadian guy named Willard Fleming, but Wade keeps mishearing Mary Hepburn's name as Mary Kaplan and also assumes she is Jewish and keeps saying stuff about, oh, you would do that because the Jewish people are so wonderful and they're really good at right. was never Jewish. Not a thing. He's, yeah, he's they don't like, know each other at all. Will you marry me, Mrs. Kaplan? <laughs> she's <laughs> like, uh, it's Hepburn, but sure. <laughs> and he's like, thank you, Miss Kaplan. But he yeah. never gets it. Um, so they get married and he dies of his wounds. Yeah. Um, and she'll, as we said, go to her grave thinking he was a great husband and actually as the years wear on you know uh embellishing the story and thinking of him as a really great man which he never was the and- six girls at this point will kill and eat kazak with their bare hands right <laughs> uh kazak's done he gets i think she gets an asterisk shortly before yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, and i don't yeah. think there's ever another dog in the story too so they're never gonna mate or anything yes yeah yeah um so kazak's and gone. she's neutered right doesn't matter yeah uh so is uh, James is yeah. is Mac- Macintosh is still yeah no he was uh, he no was Macintosh shot. Yeah, was yeah, shot yeah. in the head yeah okay. Selena's still around does uh, anyone yeah. else die on the trip or do they cra- do they Gilligan's it at this point I think that's it for the trip and it's a thing where Adolf gets them lost for five days and the narrator says that Adolf loses all self respect for himself in the meantime they spend a lot of time dwelling on who gains and loses respect for who on the journey, like a lot yeah. of pages. But suffice to say, it's not that important. Right. Adolf becomes self-loathing, and everyone hates him and realizes he sucks, because he does suck. He can't save them. He right. keeps leading them around what places he thinks there will be land, and there isn't. Yeah. But it turns out to be good for humanity, because the fact that he's that dumb <laughs> makes them <laughs> run aground and crash land on a deserted island that doesn't have the fatal bacteria on it, which is the only reason humanity survives. Yeah, they also they get to the island they think great we're on land we'll have a feast on some food and then we'll head on back he and also, then the engines yeah. don't start and the boats run aground so they're stuck yeah he also initially miscorrectly identifies it as a large island that might still have some population on it or like a city center but it's yeah. not it's a totally deserted <laughs> island that he's never been to before yeah it like, just yeah. has birds and iguanas and tortoises and stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's of course will become likened to the garden of eden because this is the new square zero where everything will start uh, if you saw the Futurama episode in the Garden of Leela, <laughs> very similar. He's the Zap Brannigan. Oh, this is a very Futurama book, yeah. Because he time. ends up like pretending shit to try and make it seem like he's running shit well, but everyone is secretly just like, just ignore that crazy dude and moves to the other side of the island and it's like, fuck that dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very Zap Brannigan. Well, and, also, and as they're working their way to the island, the blue tunnel reappears for Leon Trout and Kilgore Trout peeks out of it and says, hey, come and be dead with me. And Leon says, no, I want to find out what life is all about. If I stick with these people, I think I'll find out. And Kilgore says, you will be with them literally a million years if you do that. And then Leon doesn't take the, There's a lot of drama of him taking a couple steps one direction, a couple steps the other direction. In the end, he does not take the tunnel and yep. he sticks with them for the million years that will follow. Which is great because it's compared to the mating, very specific mating dance of the blue-footed booby native to the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. Great thing to check out on YouTube. 
Which um, Mary Hepburn taught in school. Yes. When she was a teacher. And it's obviously part of natural selection. And these blue-footed boobies do this dance where they tentatively seemingly take one step towards each other, one step towards each other. And it's a courting dance. And if they reach the middle, then they've both approved and they have sex. But if they don't, they don't. And I ju- it's just awesome imagery. So, you know, you have all this wrapped up like the tunnel's blue, their feet are blue, we're in Galapagos, they're from Galapagos, the book's about natural selection, the dance is part of natural selection. It's really well cohesed yeah um and basically it's implied it's not even a conscious decision but like he looks away from the tunnel for a second because at that exact moment mary spots land from the crow's nest after five days and is desperately screaming thank god land land ho land ho yeah and then when he looks back the tunnel's gone and he's like oh shit okay well let's see what happens because i'm here for a million years now (laughs) and we and so and we end up with our island of adolf von kleist mary hepburn hisako hiraguchi selena mcintosh and the cannibal girls and and right and uh hisako's daughter akiko who has fur on her and it becomes this little community where adolf is upset with himself he has decided to live as a hermit relatively he's also a racist and he will only have sex with Mary Hepburn because she's also white. She's He's white, not attracted right. to other uh, ethnicities of person. And of course, as is usual when racists want to procreate, he's actually doing everyone a huge favor. We don't need your racist sperm <laughs> mixing with our shit. <laughs> right. So, oh, but we yeah. do. Oh, well, uh, we do yeah. eventually. But my point is everyone on the island basically shuns him. And they yeah, make they a great like him, point yeah. about how he never learns. Like there's a one one spring of fresh water on the island and it produces more than enough water for all of them. But right. they say that one of his main preoccupations for years is trying to figure out a way to dig into the spring in order to like make it a real well or a faucet or something. Yeah, like easier to operate water. And it explicitly says like, thank God he never found any tools or anything hard enough to chip away at the stone because I can see the future as a ghost and I'll tell you. All he would have done is clog the spring and made everyone die of thirst. Right. Like humans and ended should, the species. Will you just fucking leave well enough alone, humans? <laughs> like if something's working, stop fucking with it. Well enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and also uh, this island, it's he's the only male and then there's a bunch of women of different genetics and ethnicities. And then Mary who the narrator has told us will be the most important experimenter in the history of humanity. Mary does the thing that means this can't be a uh, movie ever, which is she has, she decides to have sex with Adolf, take the sperm from out of herself and then manually impregnate one of the Concabono girls. Underaged at the time. Underage. Technically. Uh, there's no consent going on. There's a lot no, of No, she's weird... asleep. And yeah. Mary literally thinks in her brain, uh, just to think if only I'd had the courage to do something like this, like back in the real world, I would be comfortably in a prison <laughs> and not like <laughs> suffering on this desert island. Right. Which is funny because unbeknownst to her, prisons don't even exist and she would be dead. But she's like, if only I had molested children <laughs> earlier I wouldn't be trapped on a desert island right. which I think is the kind of thing Lewis Black talks about hearing and then you have an aneurysm you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. if only I had molested children earlier I wouldn't be on this desert island <laughs> when she, and she also partly does it because she's past childbearing age so she she knows she can't have a kid but oh maybe these young girls in this incredibly illegal creepy way I can do this Yeah, and the narrator points out it's interesting and it's just part of the human drive that even though she has no reason she she believes the real world still exists. So yeah. she doesn't need she doesn't need, she's not even aware that like we're it and we're trying to repopulate earth desperately. She's like just bored and crazy. Certain <laughs> yeah. certain humans when you get down to it 
and of course we do, have the natural urge that at a base level you want humanity to continue, even if the situation is so dire. So like in her declining years, she desperately wants there to be babies being born on the island, so she makes it happen. And you can argue that that's fucking creepy, but (laughs) it saves humanity. (laughs) Yeah, in the plot does. The Conquerbona girl has a son who they name Kamikaze. Uh, Kamikaze and Akiko become kind of the patriarchs of the island. Also, Adolf is furious to realize that obviously his sperm has been used to make this baby. Yeah. In a way, to punish her, uh, they still have Mandarax, we should mention, the device that Zenji uh, invented. So sort of in a way to punish her, he throws it into the ocean when he finds out. And uh, it's a great Garden of Eden parallel, obviously, which I'm not smart for picking up the uh, narrator. It's very explicit. He's like, so this new Adam in the new Garden of Eden did the thing we should have done and saved the world by throwing the apple away. Yeah. Like he rejects knowledge. He avoids original sin. And that's why this is all going to work out nicely. Because the punchline of the book is ignorance is bliss. And Vonnegut really seems to believe we would be better off if we weren't so fucking smart. It's not good to be this smart. It's like a debilitating disease that we're this smart. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, there's a climactic moment where he destroys Mandrax, which of course as an iPhone holds all the knowledge of the old world. And that's, and you're, and that's a key moment for you to think about, is that good? Is that bad? What does that mean? But it's clearly, that's the Garden of Eden moment. Uh, Mary is so crazed at the loss that she dives in the ocean after it to try and get it back, and she's eaten by a great white shark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then and Adolf also, and I, I couldn't, I think this is a made-up thing, but one of the, the Galapagos are famous for having a lot of different finches, like, and Darwin's experiments were particularly focused on the finches. Oh, there are so many kinds on one island. And in the book, there's one kind called the vampire finch, which bites you and drinks blood. So Adolf, in the process of running around and throwing away Mandarax, leaves a little shelter he had been in where those birds couldn't get at him. And now they are getting at him. And he's driven so crazy by it that he dives into the water and is eaten by a hammerhead shark. So so after Adolf and Mary, Mary kind of accidentally, kind of sneakily keep humanity going they are both eaten by sharks and i like that it's like <laughs> uh, he describes it as like a hammerhead shark like one of the most efficient it's so good at doing the six things it needs to do one yeah. thing it certainly didn't need at all was any more intelligence right like it's already super effective as it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> point case in point number is 741 <laughs> um so now you're left with only essentially the new generation or people from a lost tribe who don't know the old ways. So now we've like shaken the etch-a-sketch of humanity and we're free to start from scratch with all new rules. And the rules, many of them are rules that we would find disconcerting. For example, we go back to like caveman rules where the great-great-grandchildren of this generation of people don't worry about incest. They have sex with whoever they want, including their aunts and uncles. They have sex with walruses. Because they're like genetically, they're close enough that they can. Um, And, you know, they all run around naked and like caveman style. Sex is basically like a wrestling match that's not always consensual. So he does show you how, yeah, I get it. A state of nature is rough. And he's like, and most of them now die by being eaten alive instead of dying nicely in a hospital or being able to shoot yourself in the head and just be gone. Um, So, yeah, that sucks. And they don't have dentists anymore. So all their teeth rot. (laughs) Yeah, he he makes a point of that that's kind of the... 
determiner of a lifespan of a human is when their teeth fall apart. And he he describes teeth as broken crockery, human teeth, which is yeah. one of my favorite manga things. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but yeah, that's the determining factor for death. Also, uh, Akiko and Kamikaze pretty much become the patriarchs of the species or the uh, yeah. the the leading parents of it. But I mean, even though he doesn't mention anyone by name, given that a million years pass, I assume there's many other intervening generations of just people oh, sure. whose names we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of breed from there. Uh, Hisako and Selena commit joint suicide by just walking into the ocean once Akiko's yeah. grown up because uh, they feel like they don't have any parenting to do. And everyone else on the island is now like this new race of furry people who live through 30 years and have a totally different mental state and yeah. they're normal skinned humans and they feel weirdly out of place. And I think they have some for, cause of Akiko's genetics is a thing too, or at least that's an influence. Right. On, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. why, uh, that's why everyone on the Island ends up having the advantageous or like ends up becoming a swimming furred creature is cause Akiko sort of like started the trend. Yeah. But Selena and Hisako don't have fur. Oh no, they don't. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah they but so after they commit suicide, this new race of seal people is now the only race of humans on Earth. So the ghost waits out his time. He realizes that for the last like eight hundred thousand years of his time, nothing much changes. Yeah. And he kind of thinks it's cool. He's like, I kind of think it's a paradise. Everyone seems to live a happy, simple life. Um, and then when the blue tunnel comes, I'm definitely gonna go in because I'm right. done. And he says, I see no reason that humans will ever invent tools again. It'll probably stay this way till the sun burns out. So I'm I'm satisfied. I know the whole story. So do you. Yeah. I think it's great where he says, and I wrote this book in the air with the tip of my left index finger, which is also air. And now the book blows away. And now no one will ever know any of this happened. And now I'm stepping through the blue tunnel. Bye. <laughs> and, it, and then the very, very ending is him thinking about all that future stuff and he's about to leave. And then he also looks way back on after his terrible Vietnam War experience. When he was to, alive. When, when he was alive, <laughs> moving to Sweden and looking into living there and shipbuilding and stuff. Because I think it's a uh, psychiatrist is Swedish that he deals with and says, oh, you could just move to Sweden. They're looking for people. Right, because he's obviously been shattered by a bunch of shit he did in the Vietnam War, including shooting an old lady in self-defense. Yeah. Um. So this guy takes pity on him and is like, you know, I can help you get out of the country so you don't have to go and serve another tour. You could move to Sweden. Yeah. He's like, uh, I don't speak Swedish. And the doctor says, you'll learn, my boy. You'll learn. You'll learn. Yeah, which is a great last line. So, of course, natural selection, adapt or die. Or die and continue adapting anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and also, and that great line and the end of the plot, I think it brings us into a next segment about all kinds of great lines called Kurt Blurt. Oh, Blurt. no. Blurt, blurt, blurt. Look out for that blurt. Blurt, blurt, blurt. The words that he says, they feel good, but they hurt. <laughs> and this is, uh, yeah, this is the segment, if you've never heard the show, where we pick out just particularly choice lines or statements from Vonnegut that don't come up in a summary that uh, we liked a lot. Yes, and a lot of mine, and I assume a fair amount of yours, are going to be the the things that we didn't cover in the plot where he where he zooms in and he brings out, this is why I think being super intelligent was a mistake. Yeah. Like the argument is that, you know, dinosaurs through whatever sheer chance put all their points into being big and strong. That works for 65 million years. We put all our points into being super smart. I don't think that's going to work nearly as long. I think it's a defect. Natural yeah. selection often creates attributes that don't work out. That's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. There'll be accidents and mistakes. Right. And, 
weird so developments. Yeah. Who says the unique aspect of humanity that we're smart is even good? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because in particular, also a lot of them come from Leon Trout, the narrator, who is in a lot of ways the Kurt stand-in. One of my favorites in it is early in the book, he's talking about the massive economic collapse across the world. And he's running through all the countries whose economies have died as of that day. And he specifically says it's just because of how the economy is organized. It's not because of any scarcity or any disasters or any actual problems that don't come from human brains. And the quote is, and this famine was as purely a product of oversized brains as Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Which is great because several times later, he'll use a recurring joke, which is people comfort themselves when a friend dies by saying, oh, well, he wasn't going to write the Ninth Symphony anyway. Yeah. Like it's not a big loss to the gene pool or whatever. And he's like, one of my friends even said that about me after I died, that dick. But it's okay. He wasn't going to write the Ninth Symphony anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like for every brain we get that's able to write the Ninth Symphony, like an unheralded work of unquestionable beauty that should exist, there's a million brains that – end up committing murder or suicide or crime or are just worthless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think on some level, what is even the Ninth Symphony? Who cares? You know? Yeah, I guess who cares? <laughs> but I think in that particular example, he's even holding it up as like, even if you, let's say that's valuable, you know, because like, it's at least something that we all agree is like beautiful in some way. Yeah. But like, but what did you have to do to get that? Like all these millions of people about who you would say, well, they they're, they didn't write the Ninth Symphony. Like who right. even cared that they lived? Um, <laughs> this is a little more about the mechanics of why brains suck that I liked a lot. Quote. Mere opinions, in fact, were as likely to govern people's actions as hard evidence and were subject to sudden reversals as hard evidence could never be. So the Galapagos Islands could be hell in one moment and heaven in the next. Julius Caesar could be a statesman in one moment and a butcher in the next. And Ecuadorian paper money could be traded for food, shelter, and clothing in one moment and line the bottom of a birdcage in the next. And the universe could be be created by God Almighty in one moment and just a big explosion in the next. And on and on and on. which goes back to my favorite theme of his, which is everything is through perception. Everything is only what you perceive it to be. Everything is fake. Yeah. Money's not real unless you make it real. Blah, 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 (laughs) blah. One that ties into it a bit is he, early in the book, also just runs through a very cool and Vonnegut-y description of the entire discovery and exploration, uh, never settlement, but discovery of the Galapagos Islands in history. Kind of like in other books, uh, Breakfast of Champions, he'll do all of American history very briefly. This one he does, Finding the Galapagos. And one line about the explorers, he says, is, they did not claim the islands for Spain any more than they would have claimed hell for Spain. Yeah. Which is an explanation of no one settled there because, I don't know, it's just some weird animals. And they only became significant when Darwin perceived them to be significant and then we perceived Darwin to be significant. Yeah, for scientific reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when Mary's thinking of killing herself, why would I want to carry such a terrible enemy inside of me about her own brain? And she compares it to the antlers of an Irish elk, which is considered a laughably impractical animal because it's a subspecies of elk that developed antlers so large that most of them die because they get stuck between two trees or like (laughs) they eventually can't lift their heads enough because their antlers are so big. And scientists pointed to it as an explanation of like, see, natural selection tries all kinds of shit. Antlers were working for elks, so it tried small antlers, medium antlers, and huge antlers. And the huge antler thing is probably going to die out eventually because it's not practical. And she's saying, well, my brain seems way less practical because it's constantly yelling at me, kill yourself. That doesn't seem very naturally (laughs) selective or, like, beneficial to me surviving. Yeah, Yeah, that – 
there's also there's one chunk where he's describing Andrew McIntosh and talking about how Andrew McIntosh was excitedly pursuing success in basically every field except reproduction. He just had one kid and that was it. But otherwise, he was way into dominating the economy and dominating other things. And Trout says, So I have to say that human brains back then had become such copious and irresponsible generators of suggestions as to what might be done with life that they made acting for the benefit of future generations seem one of many arbitrary games which might be played by narrow enthusiasts, like poker or polo or the bond market or the writing of science fiction novels. Great. Yeah, he does a similar one about how, yeah, things become so abstracted, and I think this is very resonant today, Yeah. Um, where he's like, uh, people knew in like a distant, abstract way that the environment was dying and that that might oh, make yeah, your yeah, grandkids yeah. die. But it seemed so distant, because there's so many systems in between you and that reality, Yeah. that most people found like the idea of going to a protest or trying to save the world for environmental reasons equivalent to any hobby like you might be the kind of person who's trying to stop the world from ending or you might rather play tennis like yeah. they're equivalent <laughs> it's just a hobby you could do yeah yeah you might want to prevent pollution you might also want to prevent your favorite baseball team right. from he trading said, that yeah. guy you, know? you might also just want to hit a tennis ball over and over is how he <laughs> says it um and speaking of everything being imaginary i love how he says like when shit is breaking down he's like the crowd is uh hoping to get things which other humans will perceive as valuable enough to give them paper currency that a third person will perceive as valuable enough to yeah. give them food, which is fuel for humans, which will then become nothing but excrement and memories. What then for poor Ecuador? It's like nothing is real, nothing, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, uh, I'm reminded of the quote you pulled about uh, David's and Goliath's before, which is a great mm. blur in this. And then there's also another bit where he's talking about germs and he's talking about Mary Hepburn being a high school teacher in Ilium, New York. What a Vonnegut town. <laughs> and he says that uh, he's talking about the teen pregnancies at her school and how they just always kind of happened. And also people would just end up taking sick days every year. And the quote is, colds and babies were both caused by germs, which love nothing so much as a mucous membrane. I had that one. Which is such a great, like, <laughs> evolution's all kind of the same thing, even whether it's reproduction or disease or, you know, creating, destroying. It's all just germs finding spots. Yeah. And then our characters kind of become germs finding spots on a global sense. You know? Totally. Yeah. About that mystifying enthusiasm a million years ago for turning over as many human activities as possible to machinery, what could that have been but yet another acknowledgement by people that their brains were no damn good? Such a good one. Very interesting. I never thought of it that way. It's a truly a perspective shift for me. If you made, if we built, if we invented shovels because it's better than digging with your hands, and we invented a calculator because it's better than doing math with your brain, aren't we just admitting that if we one day can invent a thinking machine, we should just all kill ourselves because it'll certainly be better than us? <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. We create devices that are better than us at whatever we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That um I don't think I've said straight up on this. I really like this book. Really works for me. But also I feel like that line and that chunk on its own worked for me better than like the entire book Player Piano. It was more powerful and resonant and worked better than an entire novel. It's Player amazing. Piano felt much more like a straw man argument than this. He didn't stretch yeah. as far to make his points. Yeah. Some of these points are hard to argue with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This just in the background randomly, he does a better Player Piano. He says, see, automation, it's uh, kind of destructive. And also it's destructive for these really creepy reasons about us. Agreed. We don't like <laughs> yeah. us. Oh, there's also, speaking of how we work, uh, there's a whole chunk in the middle where he talks about, well, it's Trout talking about how brains used to work, 
and he says that apologies for momentary brain failures were the staple of everybody's conversations back then. Whoops, excuse me, I hope you're not hurt, I can't believe I did that, it happened so fast I didn't have time to think, I have insurance against this kind of thing, and how can I ever forgive myself, and I didn't know it was loaded, and on and on and on. Dead Eye Dick reference, possibly? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. There's many sentence in this, sentences in this one that in a single sentence are the plot of one of his other novels, which yeah. is cool. <laughs> um, he, call, he repeatedly calls our time the era of hopeful monsters. Which is uh, yeah. stolen from the title of one of his dad, Kilgore Trout's books, about a future where things are so bad on Earth that everyone starts giving birth to just crazy, wild mutants because yeah. natural selection's trying to find one that will work. <laughs> Again, not how natural selection works. You can't like turn on, okay, let's have mutant babies to get out of this hole now. But, um, but yeah. he says, but that's all we are. They're just not physical mutations. Look at how every bird is within a narrow band of behavioral parameters. And every cat, like, or every lion, or every tortoise, humans are fucking crazy. Like, we're so widely variable. You could consider us a race of crazy monster mutants. We just have packaging that looks the same. The variations yeah. are only in what kind of behaviors this thing is going to do. But humans represent the widest range of behaviors of any species that's ever existed. Like human, two humans can act so crazy differently from one another. Aren't we really just spewing out a bunch of mutants? <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to find a way to make this work, like living like, work. Yeah, because our whole crazy thing is that we're smart and we have distinct personalities. So we're all trying to find a personality that's like conducive to survival. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, also, and I think in the, you mentioned, because it's, it's and in the book Kilgore Trout story, The Era of Hopeful Monsters, it's also at a point where we don't know Leon Trout as Leon Trout. So it's just like my science fiction writer father wrote this. Uh, but then I think in that story, the previous generation of regular humans is like killing the monsters or afraid of them or something. It's like, it's right. like a negative reaction to Mutation. a good thing that will hopefully help humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Which in this moment reminds me of the golden age people who are like scared like millennials yeah, yeah. are killing this millennials are killing that uh i can't make racist jokes anymore and i used to be able to now right. colleges don't laugh when i say racist shit that's bad and it's like maybe right. they're better than you like maybe they're getting better in some regards right um, or like the 1950s were perfect because i've just kind of decided they were I'm, yeah because no they were right. not anything new is just scary to me so i perceive it as a negative <laughs> i mean that's a lot of us do that as we age um and i he he even has the plot of idiocracy in here in a single sentence also <laughs> and another seminal work on natural selection quote the problem was among humans those who did reproduce a lot and might be thought to want so much property for the comfort of their descendants and amass it usually made their usually made their own children into psychological cripples <laughs> who would soon have their money stolen from them by someone who was just as greedy as the antecedent who had amassed the money that they were given so yeah. and like you yes you constantly see that um because of inheritance in this world, we have this weird thing where your parents can turn out to be incredibly effective at natural selection, reproduce, 
and make all 11 of their children totally soft as shit cripples because they grow up in a completely absurd bubble rich environment right and then they suck so it's like we have this problem where the best among us if you're looking purely from like who's dominant in a survival platform don't make good kids even (laughs) like we've ruined (laughs) that (laughs) yeah yeah and because also in past books he's talked about that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves idea and he feels that his family did that which if we haven't said it's an idea where your family starts poor, becomes rich, and then falls back to poor just based on the ways different economic classes of people raise their kids. There's always exceptions, and there's always right. ways that doesn't work out. But like rich kids will almost always not be as shrewd as poor kids. So you'll only yeah. get your fortune for one or two generations, usually. Yeah. And then poor kids who are more motivated will steal it from you. Their right. kids will become soft and get it stolen from them. <laughs> and America's just a shell game where we fucking move money around and it doesn't have any rhyme or reason, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it takes the American dream idea and you're like, no, it's more like money just randomly moves around. <laughs> right, right. Like, desperate kids work hard and rich kids don't. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it like, the river flows this way, that way, this way. Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I can rapid fire uh, just a bunch of insults about brains that I think are good that are pu- purely short. Yeah, I think because I think I have two more. Oh, two okay. More cool. Oh, a brain two more. What? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Brain two more. <laughs> I didn't um, catch it. I didn't catch it soon <laughs> enough. No. <laughs> big brains. So these are again his the flaws with having big brains as he obsessively calls them. That's what we have. We have yeah. big brains. <laughs> big brains could also feel all sorts of pain, which lower animals were entirely insensitive to, which is interesting. He did, big brains can get madder and madder about a perceived injustice in the past. A dog can't do that. A, a turtle can't ruminate on revenge fantasies. You know, So like yeah. by definition, if you're dumber, you're able to just let shit go. Um, brains back then were so big that they could even deceive themselves. It's an amazing flaw that brains have. <laughs> like the idea that a human can be delusional or think, I'm doing this because this reason. But no, you're doing it because you're being selfish right now or whatever. That's a huge like programming flaw, you would say. <laughs> um, like so many – this is about Andrew McIntosh. Like so many other pathological people in positions of power a million years ago – Andrew might do almost anything on impulse, feeling nothing. The logical explanations for his actions invented at his leisure would come afterwards. That true that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think that's all my brain wants. <laughs> that's such a human psychology thing. Yeah. The self-justification of, oh, I don't make mistakes. So whatever I did before was right for X reasons. So as yeah. a narrator in my head, I'll just figure out a story reason why I was smart to do that. We do yeah. that to ourselves constantly. All the time. Yeah. I think uh, one of my last ones, you, you touched on it a bit earlier, but when they're describing James Waite's life, because also he grew up in Midland City, which we've seen in other books, and he actually meets uh, the Hoovers. He meets Dwayne Hoover and Celia Hoover, and this book makes it so James Waite is Bunny Hoover's father. Like Celia Hoover cheated on Dwayne with James Waite to make their son Bunny Hoover. Which I love. If you could make... Dwayne Hoover's life sad enough in his yeah. own book. You're now retroactively saying the gay <laughs> son that he always hated and wanted to disown wasn't even his real son. Not even his son. Yeah. What a pathetic dude. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so after the book establishes all this, there's a line that says, by Darwinian standards, as both a murderer and a sire, he, which is James Waite, had done quite well, one would have to say. 
Right, like he's that bird who's able to sneak in and impregnate a rival's bird's wife and then just leave. (laughs) And he kills one of his predators. Like, that's a pretty good run. (laughs) Yeah, because also the the making a baby and also the murder are both so sad and weird, it makes that joke very funny. Because it's like like a very ironic, like, what a success. What a win. Clearly, yeah, (laughs) setting up that the rubric for whether life is worth living should not be just did you have enough babies did you make enough money obviously that's his whole point (laughs) about this is just a good brag anyone can say about themselves you are descended from a long line of determined resourceful microscopic tadpoles champions everyone oh yeah (laughs) because the sperm that made it to the egg obviously is has to have some edge (laughs) and isn't isn't that something kilgore says to leon is that right when he's a kid to try and give him any kind of like yeah leon's like do we have any ancestors i can be super proud of and he's like Humans are all alike. They can all be proud that they are alive because everyone who's still alive is surviving. And that's quite a quite a feat to even be surviving. All of us won (laughs) a race with other sperms. Yes. And like hundreds of millions of times over because every generation is a new race and you're the product of like a huge winning streak. Good for you, (laughs) my boy. Yeah. I can do my last one relates to male uh, reproduction too. Uh, it's Leon talking about his life when he was 16 years old. And this is like just uh, Kurt loves talking about masturbation thing, but also it's well phrased. I think the line is then as now, orgasms gave no relief. 10 minutes after an orgasm, guess what? Nothing would do but that you have another one. And there was homework besides. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know. I guess maybe he's saying about a young male adolescent specifically, but I don't know about you. I only was keyed up to that degree from like 14 to yeah, 21. Right. I don't It's anymore, a young, young thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't anymore have a voice pounding in my brain that's like, how many can we get today? <laughs> <laughs> but I know that phase of life happens. Yes. Yeah. And it's a really ridiculous phase. I'm glad he like does a joke yeah. about it. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Six, by the way. Most in one day. For me. <laughs> record. He's I don't all, know. We're already talking about a book where they uh, manually insert. That's true. So like, I feel like yeah. I can talk about jizz a little. I don't, I don't know. Man. I, don't right. know. I, I would, but I don't know. As I want to do, let me uh, spurt out a few more drops <laughs> of amazing literature. Yeah, describe it that way. Yeah. Sure. Great. And, you know, we'll just lap them up and we'll move on. Oh, great. So, <laughs> quote. He was a harrowing example of quick evolution, but then so was any soldier. Just how everything relates to evolution is cool. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, soldiers have to grow up fast. Duh. That's a form of adapting to survive. Quote, happy is the nation without a history. Another way of saying ignorance is bliss. <laughs> um, about alcohol, he says, it may be that we were trying to give evolution a shove in the right direction. Please make our brains smaller. <laughs> like yeah. He thinks that we're drawn to alcoholism because we have too many brain cells and it's healthy to kill some off. <laughs> um, quote, here's another thing that big brains used to be able to do, which they can't do anymore. Enjoy in their heads events which hadn't happened yet and which may never occur. Like the idea that you can look forward to something is uniquely mm. human. In, in, in the era of big brains, anything which can be done will be done. So hunker down. <laughs> Uh, which, oh yeah, that line's great. Which is so true. It's like yeah. one of the main one of our main problems is if it turns out the laws of physics allow for the creation of an atomic weapon, one of the billions of humans will eventually be so curious that they will make one. Like yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard to stop humans from doing 
anything that can be done eventually. <laughs> and because Vonnegut even spells that out with the Trail from Midorians in Slaughterhouse Five, he said, like, they all know that one of them ends the universe down the line. And they don't feel particularly the bad about it because they're like, him. given an infinity of time, what did you expect to happen? Someone curious will do something that destroys the universe. Like, right. what? how else was it going to end? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll just get there. The happiest life consists in ignorance before you learn to grieve and rejoice. Uh, a quote from Mandarax. Yeah. Two more. And well, these... Because oh. also, it might be worth saying, this book, uh, one of Mandarax's functions, it turns out, is to just give you a famous quote that fits a topic you give it. And so this book is full of just lines from like famous works of literature and things. And they run the gamut. It's funny. There's yeah. some quotes that he includes that are obviously quotes he admires very much, and they're very poignant at the time. Yeah. And there's some quotes he puts in to show how automation is flawed. Right. Because Mandrax will come up with a quote on the topic of marriage, but they pulled it up because today is a wedding day and they're trying to celebrate. And it's a quote like, take my wife, please, W.C. Fields or something. And they're like, <laughs> see, computers suck because they don't have a soul. Like they don't understand context or whatever. Yeah. He always shits on technology. He hates technology. <laughs> well, and, I, and I think in this, he treats evolution like another piece of technology. It's another thing that we can't really shape in any way that we intend very often. It's just yes. going to be what it is and generate what it does. And again, if we could shape it and we are destined to invent a robot that thinks better than us, yeah. then that was our only purpose. Why would we exist other than to do that? Or like, you know, right. we should then bow out and be like, this is the new dominant life form. I'm glad we had a part in creating it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's one of the ways he depicts Trelfamadorians too. I think that's the Sirens of Titan ones, right? True. They, they were just are machines robots. who had replaced the organic creatures that built them. And it wasn't like iRobot where they decide you are the virus. It was yeah. the the organic matter decided you guys are the inheritors of this world because you're better than us and let themselves die out, which is yeah. cool. Yeah, um, Okay, and then the last, my last blurts are the ones that I just think tie it to Shakespeare. Um, the King Lear thing I realized was the fact that he's on, and I know it didn't. It took place on a rampart, not a ship, in King Lear. But he's on the like prow of a ship in a storm, and the ghost of his father comes and says to him, oh. "My son, like the people on this accursed ship, humans are led by captains who have no charts or compasses, and who deal from minute to minute with no problem more substantial than how to protect their self-esteem." Which is on a subtextual level the same as saying, "I'm the ghost of your father, King Lear." The new king is a fraud. All he cares about is himself and his own agenda. Is that Hamlet, though? I mean Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time I meant Hamlet. We're not going to go back and fix that. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> king Lear is the one where he has the three daughters and he ends up raving in the woods. So yeah. you're right. I mean Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. But the pouring the poison in Claudius is here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, then, the, and the Tempest is also feels like the number one one just because it's such a like asshole marooned on an island story <laughs> totally and then that just keyed me up for the line when he finally says I've I've written this in air and like I hope we didn't offend this very like Midsummer Night's Dream like yeah. he's like and this play is done and no one will remember it and it vanishes yeah, you can yeah. go home now yeah. <laughs> which like Shakespeare loved to do he has like eight plays that end with like hi I'm a fairy you can file out now thanks for watching <laughs> <laughs> last line that rhymes bows bows <laughs> yeah. cheers Please silence your cell phones right now. So we, okay. <laughs> That's all my blurts. Those are great. Yeah. Uh, we can go from there into, since we've been talking about so many of the characters in the book, let's go to a segment called Recurring Characters Update. On a little island, you get to know everyone. There they are. They recurred in your life. <laughs> I think we talked about earlier in the episode that 
in uh, Breakfast of Champions, Kurt had said he freed all his characters. And as we found, he mostly does, but struggles with it. There yeah. are still a few that he keeps pounding on, especially those Trouts. They will never be free. Yep. I think Kilgore Trout in his mind is at least half him, and he can't let himself go. Like, yeah. He, he's a, a crotchety sci-fi writer is the archetype he can't let go. <laughs> well, that actually, let's also pivot into another segment called The Meat. Let's go crazy. Let's We're do it. A pile of meat with things in between. They're it's nesting like a now. sandwich, but you know what I've seen? I've They're never nesting. seen a sandwich that's They're inside nesting. out because it's meat and it's about Kilgore Trout. Yeah. Because <laughs> okay. one thing I wanted to get into in The Meat is that I think this book is Kurt arguing with himself, and he does it by having Kilgore argue with Leon. Like, Kilgore is the dark side of himself, Leon is the optimistic side, and he needs to make two trouts because so often Kilgore Trout is Kurt, but he's torn and he's of two minds about what's going on in this book, so he puts two trouts together to fight with each other. As we've all done at some point in right. our backyard pool. <laughs> I love... Yeah, just you say, I love the idea of Vonnegut sitting stumped on this novel with his family around. And someone's like, hey, Pops, how's the novel going? And he's like, I'm really stuck. No, wait. Two trouts. <laughs> now I got it. That's the solution. <laughs> and the kid just leaves like, Dad's writing a fish book. He's writing <laughs> yeah, a fish book. Yeah. I don't know. Which he kind of did. There's a lot of fish in it. <laughs> anyway, that's that's a piece of sub meat. We'll go back into the characters. Uh, Kilgore Trout is a main character in Timequake. He also uh, has a, in that book, a father, Dr. Raymond Trout. And then he's a key character in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. That name is a pseudonym in Jailbird. And then, of course, uh, Leon is... Uh, a son. son in this book. So we have so three the generations family of Trouts. expanding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, this book does have one Kilgore Trout substory in it, and the Vonnegut Encyclopedia by Mark Leeds says there are 44 Trout fictional stories across the Vonnegut books. Collect the them all! Yeah. When also, And another meat thing I would want to talk about is I feel like this book is the closest Kurt Vonnegut comes to writing a Kilgore Trout story. Like the premise this of this This is book, like a Scooby-Doo sandwich, man. I mean, you're going bread, yeah, meat, meat, yeah. bread, meat, bread. I don't We're know everywhere. what you're doing. All We're right. everywhere. Yeah. Hit me. <laughs> right. It's like uh, in Blondie when Dagwood has one of those yes. huge sandwiches. That's all he wants. Yeah, it's this. Because premise-wise, it's such a leap and it's such a... This this book is so on, uh, in improv terms, on game all of the time. It's about Darwin the entire time and about evolution the entire time. And I think it's because it has such a clear, trouty premise of so many, because so many of his books are about, oh, humanity dies out and it's a planet of cars or humanity's <laughs> way in the future. And now they don't have sex anymore or there are multiple clouds of gas or something. Yeah. This is a book where humanity di- kind of dies out and in the future they turn into seals because our <laughs> yeah. brains suck. It's kind of the smart bunny as a novel. That's true. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't think of that. Definitely. Yeah. Trying to show how human brains are useless. Yeah. So I guess just read that. No, there's so many good, <laughs> as always, there's so many details to unpack and great moments. Yeah, but that the, explained one of my meat questions, which is why I make Leon Trotsky Kilgore Trout's son. Yeah, there's and two, I think, I think you explained, traits. yeah, they're different yeah. sides of his internal monologue. That's great. Why make James Waite the father of Bunny? Is it just to shit on Dwayne more? <laughs> yeah, I think it. Uh, I think it's the kind of thing where he can't let all these characters go, and so when he was in, a, I think he was in a position of for my points about evolution and also making James Waite's life crazy. I He's going to have him, impregnated like, someone's wife, yeah, but I'm saying, why somewhere. make it Dwayne? 
Yeah, I think it's just like pounding on that character more. Yeah. Yeah. And also and also that Vonnegut likes to Well he reuse... pounded on the wife, if you're familiar with baby making, <laughs> not playing. <laughs> uh, well also I think one of Vonnegut's uh principles of writing is don't create a character when you can reuse one. In in a good way. Oh, like, yeah. It's not okay. lazy. It's like, yeah. oh, I can fill out this person more and build more. Uh, and he's also a little sloppy about the details in a way that's fun to me. Usually, usually when he brings someone back, I mean, I think he figured, why don't I just bring these people back? And uh, it doesn't like make Bunny's life any worse to be uh, somebody else's kid. To really, be an illegitimate. For the most part. It does to me because it makes it extra ironic. I mean, it doesn't from his point of view because he'll never know. Yeah. That he perceives his life as shit because he wants the uh, he wants the acceptance of his father. Oh, you're right. And if someone yeah. had, could swoop down in time and say he's not even your real dad, he'd probably have an easier time going. Oh, then fuck him then. You know, and moving on. Oh, you're on. right though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because also his real dad would probably be more accepting of Bonnie's sexuality too. Because he had been a gay prostitute. Are you kidding me? Yeah. His like, like, his real dad. Oh, would you're be so like, right. It's his terrible. His real dad would be like, "You're gay. No big deal." Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. yeah. It makes Breakfast of Breakfast of Champions remains like the black hole depression center of his. Like you know how every galaxy has a black hole at the center <laughs> around which it pivots? I feel like the darkest we ever got peering into hit like yeah. the void that he fears is Breakfast of Champions and he keeps doubling down. He's like, oh "Yeah, my God. that time in my life was just a cesspool of terrible shit." <laughs> well, I it's I was recently talking to Tom and Abe about Interstellar and that's a that's like a movie where there's a black hole with planets orbiting around. So now oh, like yeah. Yeah. like uh, Gargantua is Breakfast of Champions. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> with like <laughs> And this is the place where uh Ben Affleck gets stuck. Ben Affleck's not in the Whoever the fuck the other one <laughs> Matt Damon. McConaughey? No, the Martian. Oh, Damon. Yeah, Matt yeah, Damon. yeah. <laughs> they, they, those two are the same to me. I have like face blindness with them. And I, I know it. they don't, even, they yeah, don't yeah. even look similar. It's that goodwill hunting synapse in no, my brain yeah, can't yeah. unlink. <laughs> right. It just, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Do you think he's called Dwayne Hoover because he sucks so hard? <laughs> that would be justified. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if did suck mean that in, I guess by yeah. the 80s it probably did. I don't know. Yeah. Hoover, that's, that's Hoover my only was question. a dominant brand already for sure, but I don't yeah. know if kids were saying suck like that. Yeah. <laughs> but and beyond them, most of the other recurring stuff is just locations. Uh, Midland City is James Waite's Ohio hometown in this. It's also a city in Ohio in Dead Eye Dick and a city in Indiana in Breakfast of Champions. And it's it also crops up in Hocus Pocus. Uh, the city of Ilium, New York, is also in Player Piano, Cat's Cradle, Slaughterhouse Five, and Short Stories. Ilium is where the Hepburns live before they go on this cruise. And then uh, Cohoes, New York, is the site of Kilgore Trout's apartment in Breakfast of Champions. And then it's where the Trouts live in this book uh, as like a family. Um, and then also there's like a sneaky jailbird reference with the American Harp Company. I noticed that. Which is ne- never comes up by name. But there's a guy named Bobby King who's the main PR person for the cruise. And his offices are in the top of the Chrysler building in New York in the former offices of an unnamed harp company, which is yeah. clearly the company from Jailbird. They just said he bought it from a failing harp company. Yeah. And that it's this beautiful glass top of the Chrysler building. So you obviously know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he even reuses sets. It's like, dude, you're a novelist. Your budget <laughs> is unlimited. And he's like, ah, I'm going right. to reuse some of these flats. <laughs> yeah, because you know, there's not that many recurring characters, but basically every location except Ecuador and the Galapagos is somewhere we've very specifically been in other Kurt books. And if these were movies, you could totally shoot all the island sections of this 
wherever you shot San Lorenzo, it's kind of oh, the same yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just fictional desert island with like a tribal yeah. people that don't really exist. Yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, in a sense, Charles Darwin comes up in a few other books, but not really. That's that's sort of a stretch. I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But like, a- I wouldn't count Abe Lincoln as a recurring character just if he's mentioned in different books. Yeah. You know? right, right. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then as far as Kurt Cameo goes, we did it. We talked to, we talked in yeah. general about the idea that Leon and Kilgore are uh, Kurt stand-ins. Yeah. In different ways. But there's still meat, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So okay. let's continue right on with the meat. Got it. So we've, we've taken the sandwich apart. We ate some bread. We ate a little meat. We crumpled all the lettuce into a ball like Soren Bowie actually does in life. Gross. Crammed it down our throats because we hate vegetables so much. We got to get it over with. <laughs> Uh, and now we're back to the delicious meat. And uh, the first meat thing I wanted to ask you, my good friend, yeah. is... Other did, than the other ones we've... Yeah. Yeah. Is, have you noticed how many books of his have an abandoned hotel where two dudes are sleeping in it? <laughs> in like a room somewhere? <laughs> I guess that comes up a lot, right? In this one, Ortiz is delivering the steaks... Because he can't find his bellboys and he just muses aloud, I bet they're just sleeping in a room somewhere because the hotel's abandoned. <laughs> and in Cat's Cradle, they find he goes to the hotel and finds the two dudes doing Bokomaru with their feet, which is not the same as sleeping, but they're in like a sleep-like trance. Yeah. And there's a third one also. What's the – they are starting to blend together, unfortunately. <laughs> but what's the other one that also just ended at the Hotel Olufsen? Dead Eye Dick. Yeah, I think. Yeah, because he ends up in Haiti after his life is ruined, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in that, he mentions two lazy hotel workers asleep in the hotel while they're out drinking drinks at the pool. What does that mean? (laughs) What? It's so specific. It's bizarrely specific. I feel like... uh, So he's two sleepy dudes in an abandoned hotel, not in America. Haiti, San Lorenzo, Ecuador. It's always an American-run hotel in a foreign land. (laughs) Well, there's because there's also a lot of similarly new york wandering in books like mother night there's a lot of like i'm an old guy wandering around new york uh slapstick there's an old guy wandering around apocalyptic new york yes and i feel it's hard to say exactly because i want to say it's because after uh kurt vonnegut's marriage to his first wife jane came apart he was like rattling around manhattan trying to just figure out his life but some of those books were written before that so I, i don't know it's hard to it's hard to pick out exactly why Sure. And certainly, like, someone can just rely on a plot point they've used before and not even realize it. Um, But because there were three, it made me wonder if it was a symbol I missed. Like, I don't know. Hotel is a home away from home, but it's abandoned, so you can't go home again. But there's two dudes sleeping in it. It doesn't fully track. (laughs) But I noticed it, and I wanted to point it out. Yeah. It's it's such a thing. And I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a manifestation of him feeling uh, uh, off balance his whole life, which he says in Palm Sunday is how you become a writer. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Another thing he seems to be a little obsessed with is incest. Have yeah. you noticed that? Yeah, that, that, comes up, <laughs> that comes up in a lot of books. And cannibalism, actually. Incest and cannibalism. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you want to jump to Vana what, but uh, that's... Not yet, because I do think yeah. before we leave the meat, I want to... So let me, let me do my little tidbits of meat that are like, I noticed this, I noticed that, and then ask you the core question that I do think we should at least bat around for a few minutes and be like, how do we feel? Sure. Yeah. Um, but I definitely – I picked up on the, the nature always wins thing. There's the Jurassic Park undertone. Yeah. Um, uh, but before we get to like the central question, which is do you agree? Do you agree that natural selection is bad or that big brains are bad? I wanted to point out why have Hisako and Selena commit suicide? 
And yeah. why have, especially when you're going to have a million years pass and they could just die of old age, why have Selena, who's still young at that point, agree to commit suicide when she has like a lot of life left to live? Is it just because she's blind? And does that mean she's useless because she's blind? Because I don't, that doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, I, I keep turning to biographical stuff. So this book's written in 1985. And in between this book and his previous book, Kurt Vonnegut, as far as I can tell, tried to commit suicide. In fe- oh, in February, for real. Like in February of 1984... <sighs> He was hospitalized after taking too many sleeping pills and drinking a lot. And Dude, I mean, I knew his brain was dark, but I didn't know as a biographical fact he ever took the plunge and had a yeah. suicide attempt. That's something to dwell on. That changes well, and, a lot about what he's thinking and what he means, you know? <laughs> it's also, like, it's a little bit unclear because, like, especially my volume of his letters is written by a personal friend of his, and it's not that it avoids it, but it sort of it doesn't doesn't linger on it, and there aren't many letters that talk about it, even though you would think it would be a heavy moment in his life. Sure, but also, uh, but also based on the letters at the time and the way it's described, apparently Vonnegut was pretty upbeat before and after the suicide attempt. And also, it's like it's hard to call it not a suicide attempt because apparently the details are he took too many sleeping pills and drank a lot. Which you know, it seems like a thing. Yeah, uh, but it's he, either like you're pretty far down the road of drug addiction to the point where you're overdosing and not <laughs> right. realizing it, or you're trying. It's got to right. be one or the other. Yeah, right, right. But uh, but then people around him are like, yeah, he we, he was in uh, like he calls it the nut ward and like laughs about it and talks about playing pool with guys there. And uh, his kids are like, yeah, he was in there and now he's out and it's super weird. Uh, I don't think it's so weird though. Or like, yeah. isn't that just? What's beautiful about Vonnegut, what you'd expect, he's one of the only geniuses or like truly wise people, I think, who is able to express himself so well, who doesn't shy away from looking in the face how horrible life is. Yeah. But he's not going to just dwell on only that. He's also funny as shit and he sees the good parts too. Yeah, right, right. So he probably killed himself because he really at that moment wanted to not be here anymore. And then, but why does that, why is that mutually exclusive with seeing the humor of the situation after you failed? I don't know. Maybe I'm dark, but like, yeah, it totally doesn't surprise me that Kurt Vonnegut would be like, yeah, I tried to kill myself and they put me in the nut ward. I even failed to kill myself. Ha ha ha. Well, I know that's true. And and, and also I, I feel like there are certain comedians, especially who were famously like funny to the end, even if they were in pain from a lot of disease or something like that. And I think... Vonnegut's mind has a lot of comedian aspects to it where, yeah, he could hit that depth and still before and after it be a fun person making funny jokes. Yeah. Like it's really, uh, it, some people are built that way. Yeah. He can be funny about how depressed he is while he's depressed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He's wry. Yeah. He's wry as shit. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then one other super psychoanalytical thing is this book came out October of 1985. And, uh, in December of 1986, his first wife, Jane, who he stayed friends with, uh, she dies of a very long battle with cancer. Um, so I think throughout the time he's writing this book, he's watching a maternal figure who is very important to him slowly succumb to a disease. So I almost think on some level he might have had those maternal figures, Hisako and Selena, decide to end it when they felt like they were done rather than, I don't know, suffer. I'm, I'm reaching, sure. but I don't know. There's, yeah. there's something there, I think. 
the last meet thing I want to really talk about is, do you agree or do you not agree? Uh, because as we discussed in Player Piano, sometimes I think he reaches as far as how deeply he hates technology. Yeah. I think he's guilty of a little Ludditism or that, like we were talking about, everything in the 30s was great because that's what was familiar to me. Right. He correctly identifies, and it makes sense because the atomic bomb was happening in his lifetime. He correctly identifies how horrible technology can be. But he glosses over how great it is also, and he goes out of his way to make it seem like you'd be happier if you threw all your technology away. I don't necessarily agree. I think we need to engender healthy attitudes towards technology, yes. but I don't think it's inherently the technology's fault. For example, the whole book's so anti-tech, going out of its way to explain why this device fucked this person's life up, this device fucked this person's life up. But he never mentions the fact that humanity would have died if not for the fact that the boat is a technological marvel. It's right. a full-size cruise ship that can be piloted by a single person because the computer's so sophisticated. Yeah. And he never points that out as a good thing. But it is. <laughs> like, yeah, it yeah. gets us to the ending he wanted. So I think he goes out of his way to not give technology credit, even when technology actually helped his purpose. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, because, and also I think he a little bit undersells even nature's just cruelty, like the way it can be a very rough thing, too, which is, I think, sort of the reverse where he, because there is one point where Akiko and Kamikaze are clearly going to be the parents of the species from here on out, and the, the older people are dying off. But he makes a point of stopping to have Akiko notice that Kamikaze is having sex with anything that moves or even sometimes inanimate objects. Just caveman style. Yeah. yeah. And he makes a point of having her feel hurt by it and feel because she's she's still a thinking person. She has fur and stuff. But right. She, she's close enough to yeah. us that she is hurt by that. Uh, but that, other than that, there aren't a lot of points where he stops to say, yeah, animals are really rough on each other and de-technologized societies are rough on each other. And that's not yeah. necessarily a lot better. Right. He goes out of his way to show how modern humans are so cruel, like yeah. uh, the thing where to save on refrigeration before refrigeration was invented, sailors would like partially kill a cow, like cripple it yeah. and let it slowly die over weeks because if it didn't die immediately, you didn't have to preserve or butcher or refrigerate it. Right. So like let it die in two weeks, then refrigerate it and you save some costs. Um, but he doesn't show how like a lion would do that to you if it could. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm not a believer that animals are somehow nicer than us. Yeah. I do think they might leave, lead simpler, more focused lives. But that doesn't mean they're nice. A lion doesn't care how much suffering you're going through while it disembowels you. So I would say there are some nice things about big brains. Big brains allow us to have a level of empathy that allow us to decide to regulate behavior. For example, brains allow us to invent the A-bomb, but they also allow us to think it would be nice to curb nuclear arsenals, or it would be nice, yeah. and I mean this is a grim example, but like I'm if, if I am going to kill someone, humans tend to, sane humans, tend to want to kill them fast because it feels weird and gross to like torture them over a long period of time, unless that's what you want because you're nuts. Yeah. Um, and my point is a lion wouldn't care. A lion would torture you, not even be consciously torturing you, but just slowly eat you alive. So I'm like, yeah, he makes animals nicer than they really are. Right. Or he just chooses not to mention that going back to a state of nature means almost every sexual thing now is now rape-based. Yeah. He kind of glosses <laughs> over that, and that sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see why he's so crotchety, but we're not as crotchety as him yet, clearly. <laughs> yeah, not quite. Yeah. And also, and I think on some level, he might wish he wasn't quite that crotchety because of the two trouts we follow, Leon. Kilgore just pops in 
to be clearly a difficult dad and a, a unhappy person. And maybe on yeah. some level, he'd rather be a Leon who's a little more uh, at least curious, if not optimistic. Yeah, but even though Leon is optimistic, he still ultimately decides that they're better off as seals who re- who have no mental acuity, get eaten by sharks and don't live past age 30 than we are now. And I don't know. I'm on the fence. I think there's pros and cons in both. Yeah. realities <laughs> uh yeah he, leon's definitely more optimistic about humans and i think it's really important to note that leon's mother's favorite quote which is the quote that opens the book is anne frank's quote in spite of everything i still believe people are good yeah meaning and of course in that case in spite of the fucking nazis doing all the shit you didn't think was possible like levels of depravity and uh leon is saying despite the fact that humans ended up just destroying the earth Somehow I still like them. I have a soft spot for them. I'm glad they didn't get all get wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it isn't it a plot thing where Kilgore drives uh, Leon's mother, his wife, away too? Like I think Kilgore is rejecting that viewpoint and by Kilgore being so cynical. Yeah. 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 The wife eventually left because she's like, "You're just such a sad sack. I can't <laughs> do this." Which uh, I I'm sure is something that. Uh, a wife or two said to Kurt at different points in his life. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm reaching the ends of my limit of how much ugliness you can, like, show me before I'm like, I get it. You're sad. You don't like the world. And and on some level, I think his brain said it to himself, you know? Of course, Like, it's suicide or not. Like, it's just like, cut it out. This is just too crushingly depressing. Go, like, look at a flower or something. Like, calm down. Yeah. And you, of all people, know that that's within the control of your perception. Yeah. Even if the world is objectively awful in a lot of ways, there's wiggle room there, as you of all people know. Yeah. You could let it crush you or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have one more meat thing. Do it. Uh, I, it's, I'm curious how open you are to this theory, which is that kind of like how Slaughterhouse-Five, there's all the science fiction elements and it might actually be PTSD. Is this book possibly a post-Vietnam PTSD kind of thing in Leon's mind? Because I think it would line up Whoa. reasonably well, too. If it was Vietnam was terrible, he moves to Sweden to try to get better and just doesn't get better. So then all this wow. death at the shipyard and uh-huh. seeing a million years of crazy evolution. So even would before be he died, like he didn't actually get decapitated. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. He's like in or, Sweden. Yeah. No one can help him because he didn't learn to speak Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like in a hostel in a corner. Yeah. Being like, you're all going to die anyway. And then there's going to be these seal people. And then I'm going to be a ghost. <laughs> yeah, that could be. Right. And I'm writing awesome. a book in the air. Like it's <laughs> yeah, very, it could play as another PTSD story. <sighs> yeah. The end of the movie is you zoom out. It's just a homeless dude writing in the air with his index finger. And you're yeah. like, well, that's a crazy homeless dude. <laughs> yeah. Like Slaughterhouse-Five might be a guy has a bunch of fantasies and dies on a bus bench in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. This might be a guy who has a bunch of fantasies after Vietnam and dies in Sweden somewhere. Is that a, have we That's snapped into that Slim Jim thoroughly enough? Yeah, I think, I think yeah. so. I, I think we can, uh, we only have a few segments left. One of them is a segment called Vana What? Oh, yeah. Vana What? Want to rip into one? Uh, we are. What? disappointed (laughs) well last time this was an extremely limited segment because he like yeah he avoided anything problematic or or he called it out like or he called it out very clearly yeah yeah this Um, one not so much last last time being dead eye dick yeah there's been there have been worse books than this but this one i think he fell back into a couple of things i really don't like i don't like when he makes up a jungle tribe and instantly without questioning it makes them cannibals who eat with their bare hands (laughs) 
Yeah, like, that that, that yeah. was my main thing. That I don't know why he loves cannibals as a trope so much. It's right. very strange. And the concept of like native peoples ha- fuck their sisters and they'll eat you alive. And I'm like, yeah. well, not all. Hashtag not all native peoples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not to say that cannibalism has never existed on the earth, but I don't know why he needs to make it a trope of jungle peoples yes. so often. And he calls them very quote strange. real Indians and equates that to being a real yeah. wild cat and i'm like don't equate them to animals (laughs) like don't do that (laughs) um so yeah Yeah. the the concabonos are basically handmaids like they are used as wombs by the book and they're given pretty short shrift (laughs) yeah that's my my other thing because i i think a lot of the there's a lot of brutal sex and brutal sexuality in the book i think he justifies it by making this such a book about evolution and he's saying that evolution has cruelty to it Mm -hmm. but I think he's still not very elegant about like he packs this book with female characters, which is very exciting and very rare for him. But I think he often is not elegant about it and often doing it just to get enough wombs in the mechanics of the plot. I was super excited when he said, and here's yet another lady in this book. And you're like, oh, actually, he's right. The majority of characters are female. That's cool. Yeah. Then he slowly but surely gives most of them nothing to do. And the men are still the main characters. So it's more of a disappointment because he sets it up as if he he nailed it this time, but he didn't. It's the same. Yeah. Um, like like we said, Selena A doesn't do much, and B, he constantly makes jokes about the fact that she's blind. Like he says, yeah. of course, Selena was still in the dark, so to speak. And you're like, <laughs> shut the fuck up, dude. Yeah. And like she's willing to kill herself even though she's young. And the implication to me, but maybe I'm wrong, was that it's because she's blind or and it's somehow defective. He says uh, it was good that her blindness didn't infect the human gene pool that was about to move forward. He several times describes people as normal when compared to her. Yeah. He goes like, of course, Selena didn't know what was going on, but the normal people saw that this was happening. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's not just the language, but he does make her very, like, her capabilities incredibly limited and almost no personality. And I'm like, yeah, I've known blind people. They don't like... They do so. You're right. They don't become <laughs> totally introverted and know nothing about the world and live only in their head. They right. can hear. They can smell. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weird. <laughs> uh, if you're talking yeah. about problematic stereotypes, I think it's cool that there's some Japanese people in this. Do they have to be a genius computer programmer and the other one teaches Ikebana? It's like... It, yeah, it's very like if you had a Texan character who only ate steaks and wore cowboy hats or right. something. And yeah, right. And he's like an oil baron and his <laughs> wife shoots coyotes for a living. Right. Like, when she's not a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader it. or something. They're from Texas. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, we get it. She, she teaches haiku school and he right. is like a kung In fu samurai master. Town we or get something. it. Right. Yeah. yeah, some terrible. They're yeah. Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> also, just the idea that he wanted a genius computer programmer, and he's like, you know who's good at computer programming? Those Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not false, but he he leans into the stereotype pretty hard. Um, that's all I got, though. Yeah, that's it, that's pretty much. He's uh, kind of like with that idea. He's somewhat evolving or else calling out his own uh stuff yeah but, but there's still there's more in this one than previously it's it's a yeah yeah it's a downgrade although i forgot he still does describe a woman as so fat ugly and stupid she never should have been born and i just hate that's, how he and that's the thing he does often two women oh, exclusively he never says that about a man he'll say bad shit about a man but he never yeah. says like and they're just a fucking waste of space but he says it about women because i think does he I feel like he has a subconscious thing where he does think of women as like, if they can't be a mother or a 
he doesn't see their functionality or I don't want to pile on too hard. But yeah, it's like four different women who are go unnamed in Kurt Vonnegut books that he says like, and anyone looking at her would just be like, God, what a dumb, ugly woman. And I'm like, yeah, all right, lean <laughs> off the gas. <laughs> well, I, I also, I agree with all that. And does he manage to to like do that with a male character with James Waite? This might be like the first time because it's kind of a character who is fat and not attractive and shouldn't have been alive. Who was a man? He is, but I guess, and I could. Be but he wrong. doesn't describe it that way either. He but, doesn't hit him with that, right? He with the men that are deplorable, he always unpacks in great detail what their particular faults are. Yeah, but he seems much more comfortable to, so to speak, pan past a woman who will never see again. Yeah. and say, "Look how fat and stupid she is." All right, moving on. Like, you know what I mean? James Waite gets his whole internal logic explained, and he has like a whole, anyway. Yeah, same. Sometimes I feel that way about Coen Brothers, how they cast extras. I'm like, I'm sure it's an honor to be an extra in a Coen Brothers movie, but you do realize they're casting you because you're so ugly, right? Like, they only cast ugly people with weirdly interesting faces as extras. That's true. <laughs> yeah, all their background is real good. Or right, like yeah. if they have a big, flushed, pig-looking southern lady, you're like, Did the, do they tell them that? Do they tell them that's what they're looking for? Like, I, like I actually, in the man who wasn't there, do they go to the extras thing and they're like, sorry, you you don't look weird enough. Next. You're not ugly enough. Next. Well, also by, <laughs> my sense of it is the casting directors will do that kind of, you for know, them, like yeah. maybe, well, and not just for them too. Like just a lot of parts, they'll like either in a very thinly disguised code way or in a direct way, be like, we need an ugly guy. Uh, we're for casting sure. for ugly guys. Yeah, we, who's ugly? We're looking for non-symmetrical <laughs> performance. In yeah, this we need a stick yeah. figure-looking freak guy. Who could we get? You know, and then like somebody does it. Or in Game of Thrones, when you know how if you've ever been a dead body covered in blood in a shoot, how fucking uncomfortable that is because you have to lie still covered in sticky syrup for hours. Yeah, you I'll have always, to like pretend not to breathe, and that's right. Hard to do. I'll lean over to, and if you fuck up, you you are a nobody who costs celebrities hundreds of thousands of dollars so right. you feel bad right so i'll always lean over to jen and be like that person's so excited to be doing that that's insane oh, like it's a big deal for them or even... to be this bloody torso and it was a <laughs> terrible experience for them objectively or yeah and even like speaking of hbo when westworld was on the way out it got out uh the documents that they used for casting the warehouse of naked people like oh, under westworld you know yeah where it's just the document was basically like we need like a person who will be very naked in a weird space for an entire day. And they can stand still forever yeah, and yeah. not bitch about it. And yeah. like, that's, not a, that's not a fun role to go out for. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And then your reel is like you yeah. nude in a basement. You I know? got on an it's HBO weird. show. Yeah. What, you, what, uh, what part are you? Just look for me. You'll see me. You'll notice me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, fun fun with casting. Yeah, that was a good digression. Yeah. And we, uh, we were just talking uh, right before that about other Kurt Vonnegut books. Let's get into a segment called Kurt Vonna grades. Yep. Oh, we're still doing this. I was unaware because we passed the time when he mentioned the grades. Yeah. If you've <laughs> never heard the show, there's a book called Palm Sunday, which we did two episodes ago, where Kurt graded all of his works relative to himself, including Palm Sunday. Then our previous book, Dead Eye Dick, he did an interview where he gave that a grade. And uh, then this book, as far as I can tell, is our first book with no grade from Kurt Vonnegut. It lives without rating wow. until now. We're going to give it our own Kurt Vonnegut grades. Okay. And I, I'll go first. I think I would give it an A minus. It really, it it works for me very well as a, as a book. It's not on the tier of like his greatest stuff. Uh, there's parts of it where he's sort of uh, repeating himself a bit. The book probably could have been a few pages shorter. It's relatively long for a Kurt book, mm -hmm. but it's got so much 
compelling and effective stuff uh, often. And it's really neat to see him do a mystery. It's neat to see him do a Kilgore Trout premise, basically. And it's stuff about evolution is really, really resonant. Yeah. And his, as always, he's a big believer in like mo- repeating motifs. So it goes, so it goes, so it goes on and on, on and on, on and on. Yeah. Pooty wheat. And this one, <laughs> the big brains like refrain is yet another new one. That's really, he's really good at coming up with yeah. catchy slogans. Each book almost has a catchphrase and this one's is in the era of big brains, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it works really well for me. I'm going to say a minus two and I could be wrong. Do you have the reference there? Do you know what I gave slapstick? But I feel I like it's exactly like on par with slapstick. Oh, you get you gave uh, slapstick a B. A B. Okay, then I'll, I'll put it above. I'm comfortable with that. I'll yeah. still give it an A minus. Yeah, I think it's even it's more interesting than slapstick. The things that actually happen. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, the plotting of it felt very much like slapstick. But I would say this plot is a little cleaner and and better. Slapstick yeah, had some yeah. like the Green Death is just this vague bludgeon. Whereas in this book, you really feel like World War Z or something where it's like, you know, every step that leads to this small group of characters getting out of the apocalypse. Oh, And it's yeah. nice. It's cool to see every step. Whereas in Slapstick, he does a lot of jumps where he's like, later I met the king of Michigan. Later this girl got here. We won't really go into how she got there. This yeah, is right, in right. real time. You see everything that happens in this book. Yeah, and exactly blow by blow how we get the human gene pool we get yeah. after this disaster. Like he, he very meticulously with stars notes who's going to contribute and who's not and how. Yeah. Um, and we can, uh, since we talked about other works a bit, let's go into a segment called Related Reading. I only brought three today because I already said Frighteners. <laughs> or it would have been one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. We yeah. saved me from trying to pretend a movie is a book. <laughs> we do that sometimes. Yeah, it's I great. do that sometimes. Yeah. I, when you were talking about World War Z, I thought of the movie Contagion. Uh, that's also a movie. It's a Soderbergh movie. It's really good. It. Yeah. And it, uh, cool. it is very blow by blow like this is. But anyway. Nice. Yeah. But I'll start us off with an Ellison. Yeah. So returning to form. Back um, again. Yeah. Do, 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 do. I may even have recommended this story before, not as an official related reading, but like I think I mentioned it during the podcast, but I'm officially telling you to read it. It's called The Silver Corridor, and it's a great Harlan Ellison short story about a future society where they have holodecks that really hurt you. And instead of having like duels like we used to have, people sometimes, if they disagree enough, enter into an arrangement where you enter the holodeck and one person will be killed and one person will live. But the only – the thing that determines whether you live or not is an algorithm that recreates reality continuously based on whose convictions are strongest. So it's constantly manifesting things that you think will convince your opponent and vice versa and is also punishing you if you lose your conviction. And if you become convinced (laughs) that you are mistaken after all the other person is right, that's the moment you die. Wow. Right. So like they'll be playing chess, but it's like all the pieces – are so sharply hewn that it cuts you to touch them. And the word, like the queen cuts you the most, but a pawn doesn't cut you as much. And they're like arguing about their point while they're moving the pieces and trying to force each other to have to touch the queen and bleed out. Damn. And then all of a sudden it changes to now we're on a volcano and the lava sloshes back and forth based on who's winning the argument. It's really cool. It's really cool. That sounds amazing. And it has a good punchline as short stories in sci-fi tend to. Reminded me of this just in the sense of, like you said, this would be Leon Trout and Kilgore Trout arguing as oh, manifest yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as a future like holodeck fight. 
Because oh, absolutely, yeah, it's, it's very much metaphysical and stuff. Two guys who used to be friends are just arguing a philosophical point they've been arguing about, and they've gotten so invested and upset they're willing to die over it now. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's cool. My, speaking of trouts, uh, I want to. I think we've talked about this story once before, but it's a story called Microcosmic God. It's by Theodore Sturgeon, mm-hmm. and uh, Theodore Sturgeon was a science fiction writer who, other than Kurt Vonnegut himself, is the main inspiration for Kilgore Trout. And it's a story about science basically creating the next kind of human in a very contained environment. So clear uh, Galavgo's thing, we're in a contained environment, they make the next humans. Uh, But in Microcosmic God, the next humans and next beings are incredibly exponentially smarter than we are, more capable than we are. And so Uh it becomes a chase of, do we contain them? Do we let them loose? What do we do? It's really cool. And it's one of his most famous stories if you just want to discover Theodore Sturgeon. I guess I'd like to believe if humans somehow created a life form that we could see was obviously superior as, to us in every way. Yeah. We wouldn't be dicks and be like, we got to wipe them out. Like, it's so fucking evil. Or it's right, so transparently right. yeah. selfish. It's like, really? <laughs> like, if they if we gave birth suddenly to a race of angels and we were like, we got to genocide these angels because this is our land. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> come on, man. If you believe in evolution, let let it happen. <laughs> oh right, like don't put your finger on the scale. Let the right, yeah. Let it let it work. Yeah. Um, I was wrong. I only have two. So my last one, because I realized I mentioned Frighteners and Ender's Game, and if, oh yeah, if you need to have Ender's Game recommended to you, then you don't read. So <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's very famous. To yeah, it. yeah, yeah. But one that I know everyone's heard of, but they might not have sat down and actually read. And if you can find a good translation from it from the Old English, I do think it's worth reading. Is Canterbury Tales. Oh, and Canterbury Tales. A lot of books. It's like watching a, a really old movie and realizing, oh, it invented buddy comedy where they have to get across country in a car in a limited amount of time. Canterbury Tales invented the story template, which is there's a framing device where a group is traveling somewhere. Well, to kill time while they get there, they all tell each other their life stories, and each life story is its own lesson that bears on the central theme. That's Canterbury Tales. It's a bunch of pilgrims going on a pilgrimage, and they blah, 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 blah. But, like, if you've ever read the sci-fi epic Hyperion, one of the best sci-fi books of all time, clearly based on Canterbury Tales. Um, There's a lot of stories clearly based, at least on the format of Canterbury Tales. And I totally got Canterbury Tales flashbacks from this in the central section when they're on the boat. And then to a lesser degree when they're on the island, because it did feel to me, but especially on the boat, it was like, if you have a raft that has all the remaining living humans and they're each different, then each one kind of represents a sector of humanity, right? And through what happens to them, the author comments on what he thinks about that type of person. Canterbury Tales is the same. Like the farmer's tale is commentary on how Chaucer feels about the farmers as a class in society, right? Yeah. So if you wanted to see where, like, we got that template, it's Canterbury Tales. And oh. a bunch of the Canterbury Tales stories are good. They're like Aesop's fables. Like, they, they're good and they're short and they have a good punchline. Does it? I've never read it. Does it feel like a short story collection almost? Or is it more of a... Absolutely. It feels like Illustrated Man, a short story oh, collection that's on theme. Yeah. Because all the pilgrims are going somewhere for a specific reason, so they tend to tell stories that bear on the theme, but it's literally like, yeah, the farmer's tale has nothing to do with the butcher's tale or the priest's tale or the knight's tale. They are their own life story and they're all completely variable and you don't have to read them in any order. But you know, after you read them all, you can look back and be like, oh, but they were all about how humans come to terms with what is right and wrong in my life and what brings me closer to the divine versus takes me away. Obviously, because it was written in the 
1100s or whatever, and they're on a pilgrimage. Yeah. So it's about your relationship to God. But no, you could jump in the middle and just read the one about the lady who gets her ass burned through the window, and it's funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's like, yeah. I like that they're trying to cheat on her good. husband by sticking her butt through the window of her lover, and he thinks it's something else, so he put like a hot pie in that window, and she burns her butt, and that's what you get for cheating on you. I was like, it's little Aesop's <laughs> fables like that. Yeah. And a bunch of yeah. them are dirty and funny. They're pretty good. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. I Because, yeah, I, my understanding of it culturally is that it's a landmark work of writing, and I would assume it's serious. But no, there's, like, jokes about burning butts. It's Great. more like a landmark work because, you know, when someone roams around and collects all the classic tales that are part of this area's heritage oh, and puts okay. them in a book and we're all glad they did that for history's sake this was that like all those tales were not even tales that Chaucer wrote you know he collected oh, all the like folk tales and put them together so it's a landmark book because it's a glimpse into history like what what were the popular stories of that time yeah and the original is fun to read because it's like crazy twain oft gang off the glee in the green of the gaze <laughs> like uh, Dan O'Brien can translate a little of it but not me <laughs> uh, why well, great I have Two more. One is a, a short story. It's by Terry Bisson, and it's called Bears Discover Fire. Uh, I was pointed to his stuff by my friend Alex Coulomb. Hi, Alex. Uh, and Bears Discover Fire is a short story where it's set in the U.S. in the modern day, and just bears start to make fires. Bears discover fire. Yeah, they, I was like, I think I title. can guess. They <laughs> And it's set mainly around highways in the like mid-Atlantic. And people are just seeing bears are starting to eat berries that started to grow in highway medians because of pollutions. Yeah. That are gross to humans, but they make bears somehow smart enough to make fires. And it's a very mysterious and vibey kind of trip through a couple of people interacting with bears that are now instead of running around in the woods just gathering at fires and sitting at fires and just being very thoughtful do they like cook <laughs> meat they like do they kill an elk and drag it to the fire and cook it and eat it they pretty much just hang out at the fire so it's almost yeah. druidic like the fires are something they like to kick it out at night yeah and, and it's people like people are like it's just weird to observe a bunch of bears calmly sitting around a fire <laughs> yeah yeah and so the main human character it's all from human perspectives and the main do they hate are the bears trying to use this ability to conquer anything or are they just chilling it's like they're just chilling and it's just started to happen and <laughs> yeah. it's very mysterious to people okay. but they're and not like a, trying to take back the city by burning shit down or anything yet no, yeah, they're just not doing it. Uh, and like the news is theorizing about it. It's very gentle and it's very like, uh, it's a sort of cool, vibey slice of life of, oh, maybe this is a way uh, life on Earth could go. Suddenly, yeah. ba- like, it's like bears are at the threshold of consciousness. What do we do? Smokey kind of the Bear has reversed his position. What do we do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's a really, really good piece of writing. And I, I read it online. I think it's it was Lightspeed Magazine. They just have it online for free. You can go check it out. Do you know the Uplift Wars saga, David Brin? I've heard of it. It's cool. It's really, uh, the on the prem, central premise is that we start trying to use genetic engineering and cybernetics to make the species that are already, rather than inventing androids, yeah. it turns out to be easier to make the species that are already the closest to humans smart enough to communicate with humans. So we create cyborg dolphins and chimps through genetic tampering and cybertronics or whatever. Uh, we can now, t- they can talk and they have a part in human society. Yeah. And we call that uplifting that species. And we foolishly decide that us, any species we've uplifted owes us one million years of servitude. And then they get to be their own species, right? So, of course, <laughs> the series basically boils down to dolphins and monkeys 
killing humans in a galactic civil war. Yeah. Seriously, it's not as dumb as it amazing. sounds, but it is. It's what if the dolphins and the monkeys fought us? But I just thought that was such a novel yeah. like mechanic is we just wanted to talk to the dolphins, but now we can and they hate us. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that sounds great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also a Simpsons episode, I think. Yeah, that, uh, there was a treehouse of horror where the dolphins. Well, it's, and it's almost like a heavy uh, hitchhiker's guide cosmology thing where, yeah. like, where mice and dolphins are smarter than us and they just they can't just speak english so we don't know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the dolphins all just boop yep out. and mice are the smartest of all and always have been yeah god let's cover that series that book that, that's oh, so oh, good. hitchhiker's guide it's, it's endlessly brilliant but one other uh we're, we're recommending a lot it's great yeah uh one last one is uh, a book called 100 years of solitude by gabriel garcia marquez it's reasonably famous you may have heard of it uh, this book is set in latin america it's in ecuador and i am partly recommending this because i haven't read a lot of latin american authors but i like this one a lot um and also it's a book that garcia marquez does a lot of magical realism which is a little different from this book, but this book is kind of sort of, it's like a very cut and dried magical realism almost. Like it's, it's all scientific, but a lady has a baby with fur on it just because she was near a bomb. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Uh, And it's a book where you're tracking what ends up being seven generations of one family in a fictional version of Colombia, where Garcia Marquez is from, that is very, very cut off from the rest of the world. So it's almost like an island. It's just on its own. And it goes from the founders of the family trying to build a country to a seventh generation where they have a baby who has a pig's tail and is eaten to death by ants. <laughs> it really, it goes a lot of directions and it's also really emotionally resonant and his writing's amazing. So it's a really great novel. One of my favorites of all time. I just did the top 10 books Twitter game and 100 Years of Solitude definitely made the list. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah I, uh, oh, I didn't incredible. see. Awesome. All so right. yeah, that's our related readings. I'm out. So yeah. exciting. <laughs> uh, I think we have one segment to go, which is Vonnegut News. Drum solo. Okay. That that didn't help. We don't speak for yourself. There's one event to talk about, and then one release of a neat thing. The event is the the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis. They're doing a Banned Books Week at the end of September. So September 24th through 29th, they've got a bunch of events going on, uh, partly because some of Kurt Vonnegut's works were banned by various local jurisdictions and even burned in certain places uh, like North Dakota. Shout out to North Dakota for burning books. They also, the library just retweeted my hilarious eclipse joke. Oh, so they're officially hey. a friend of the show, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> they always have been, and now we're and even closer, are, baby. Yep. Um, so check out the, uh, if you go to their website, vonnegutlibrary.org, and look up events, there's a whole list of events they're doing at that library in Indianapolis. Uh, I won't list them all because there's a lot, but it's a great space, and it's a cool, uh, I don't know, talking about literature and the First Amendment in a space with friendly people sounds like a good time to me. So check it out. And then the other piece of Vonnegut news is that in between our last episode and this one, I don't know, I don't exactly know who made it, but there's a cast album of the musical revival of God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater by Ashman and Mencken. And that's out. You can hear it on whatever you want. And uh, we listened to it and uh, I enjoyed it. I completely forgot to listen to it. (laughs) Oh, that's my bad. But it sounds good. I was supposed to listen to that on the way in. I'll listen to it on the drive home. Yeah. Um, But Ashman and Mankin are the golden era Disney guys and Little Shop of Horrors guys. So I have no doubt, unless they've just aged terribly, that it's worth listening to at the very least. Yeah. It's got to be decent. 
Well, it's also something I realized is that uh, mainly because of Hamilton lately, there's been excitement about people just listening to the cast album of a show they've never seen. And mm-hmm. because Hamilton has the whole show in the album, you can just get the show from that. Yeah. This one, having read the book, I know the show. You know what I mean? Like, I don't right. need any of the interstitial scenes. I know everything yes. that's happening. And I get that sung through effect from the album, <laughs> which is cool. So yeah, final verdict, like, did you find it as catchy and melodic as, say, Aladdin or, like, Little Mermaid's score? What? <laughs> it's got it's got less incredible songs than those movies do. Okay. But there's a couple of songs, in particular one called 30 Miles from the Banks of the Ohio, that mm-hmm. then also medleys into something else that I've I've listened to on repeat quite a bit. It's cool, great. cool. Yeah. So and the and the cast, especially uh, Santino Fontana. I've never heard any of his stuff. Amazing. He's great. Nice. Really, really good. He's Elliot in it. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe not the perfect album, but like a lot of standout tracks. Yeah. Worth yeah. listening to for sure. Cool. And I a real, can't wait. And a cool experience if you've read that book. God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. Yeah, yeah. Just to hear. Yeah. Yeah. You just get and, a weird like. I, that's a reference to a thing I know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in the show, James Earl Jones is Kilgore Trout. I believe he never sings. Like he, you hear him talk a little bit on the album yeah. and you're like, there he is. But that's it. Yeah. Good call though. That's so a good trout. It's probably a good yeah. move. Yeah. And uh, beyond that, I think that wraps us up for this week and this book. Nice. Which has been great. All the news that's fit to have said to you. <laughs> and uh, programming note, our next episode will be about the novel Bluebeard, which came out in 1987. And then after that, the novel Hocus Pocus in 1990. We're almost to the 90s. Yeah. What a time. Um, if you want extra credit, do listen to the song Hocus Pocus by Focus. Uh, that will play. There's a band into called the... Focus? Yeah, there was, a, there was a band called Focus, and their only hit song was Hocus Pocus. <laughs> Has yodeling in it. It's a great song. Yeah. My Is favorite... the album called, like, Locus or Mocus? Or nah, like, yeah, or yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm a big, yeah. Well, this is all from a classic rock era, which I was drilled on as a kid. Docus Procus, our Best album. Best example Check ever. There was a one-hit wonder band with a song called Hey, hey St. Peter that is a kick-ass song. Yeah. It's their only good song. It's the only time they ever charted. Name of the band? Flash in the Pan. <laughs> <laughs> like they knew, they knew what they were. <laughs> I love it. Like calling yourself, we have one good song, the right, band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but yeah, those are our next books coming up. We've had so much fun hanging out with you and with each other. And if this isn't nice, what is? What is?